Chapter 26 I came to with a headache, and my stomach attempted to slither out of my mouth. Its escape attempt was blocked by some kind of gag. I had the taste of metal in my mouth, and my jaws were forced uncomfortably wide. The blindfold on my face was almost a mercy given the headache. I was pretty sure any light that got into my eyes would hurt like hell. My nose was filled with scents. Old motor oil, gasoline vapors, dust, something metallic and elusively familiar. I knew the smell, but I couldn't place it. I lay prostrate on some cold, hard surface, concrete at a guess. My arms were held up above my head, my wrists bound in something cold that prickled with many tiny, sharp points, thorn manacles then. They were meant, along with the gag and blindfold, to keep me from using my magic. If I tried to start focusing my will, they would bite and freeze. I didn't know where the damn things came from, but Crane wasn't the first bad guy I'd met who kept a pair on hand. Maybe there'd been a sale. I'd heard one person claim that they'd been invented by a 2,000-year-old lunatic named Nicodemus, and I'd heard others claim they were of fairy make. Personally, I figured they were more likely a creation of the Red Court, material for their war with the Council. It would certainly be to their advantage to make sure as many people as possible had a set of restraints with no purpose but to render a mortal wizard helpless. Hell, if I was in the Red Court, I'd be giving the things away like Halloween candy. It was a scary notion, and for more than one reason. I was in trouble up to my eyebrows, but my nausea was severe enough that it took me several minutes of effort to care. Come on, Harry. You aren't fighting your way clear of this. Use your head. For starters, I was still alive, and that told me something all by itself. If Crane had wanted to kill me, he'd had all the time he would need to do it. He wouldn't even have had to worry about the death curse a wizard could lay down on his enemies on his way into the hereafter. Unconscious wizards can't throw curses. I was still breathing, which meant I swallowed, which meant that he had other plans for me. It did not seem like a promising way to begin thinking my way clear. I tried to say Rollins's name, but my tongue was being held in place by something, and it sounded like, Rara? Here, Rollins replied, his tone very quiet. How you doing? Laya, laya. They got me cuffed to a wall, he said. My own damn cuffs, too. And they took my keys. I can't get to you, man. Sorry. Why? Where? Where are we? He asked. I nodded. Yeah. Looks like an old auto workshop, he replied. Abandoned. Metal walls. Windows are painted over. Doors chained shut. Lots and lots of cobwebs. All our light comes from. The light? Big old shop lamp. Are anyone here? Anyone here? Rollins asked. Yeah. Creepy little guy with fish lips. He won't talk to me, even when I ask pretty please. He's sitting in a chair about three feet from you, pretending he's a god dog. Anger returned to me in full force and made my head pound even harder. Glau. Glau'd been driving the van. Glau had killed my dog. Without consciously making the effort, I found myself reaching for my magic, for fire enough to cremate the little toad. The manacles became a frozen agony that wiped anything resembling thought from my head. I bit down on the mouthpiece and forced myself to relax my will. 
I could not afford to allow my impulses to control me, or I'd never get out of this. There would come a time when I wouldn't have to bite back on my emotions, but that time was not yet here. Wait, I promised my anger. Wait. I need to think for now, to get clear of my captors. And as soon as I did, Glau was going to have a real bad day. I relaxed my will, and the pain of the manacles faded. Patience, Harry, patience. A door creaked open and footsteps approached. A moment later, Crane's voice murmured. Awake, I see, Dresden. Your head must be as hard as everyone says. Mr. Glau, if you would be so kind. Someone fumbled at the hood over my face, and it withdrew, along with the mouthpiece, and I could see that hood and gag were all of a piece, charming. The mouthpiece had gripped my tongue with two little clamps. I spat the taste of metal out of my mouth along with a little bit of blood. The hood and muzzle had torn my gums open in a couple of places. I lay on my back, staring up at a corrugated metal ceiling, then looked around at a dim, ugly, forlorn-looking auto shop. The nagging sense of familiarity increased. The only doors leading out were chained shut and padlocked on the inside, and no keys were in sight. Crane stood over me, looking down, smiling, as tall and dark and handsome as you please. My eyes went past him to Rollins. The dark-skinned cop stood leaning against the wall, one wrist cuffed to a metal ring in a steel support beam. A bruise, severe enough to show even on his dark skin, covered one cheek entirely. Rollins looked calm, remote, and unafraid. I was fairly sure it was only an act, but if so, it was a good one. Crane, I said, what do you want? He smiled, a nasty smile. To build the future, he replied. Networking is very important in my business. Cut the crap and talk, I said in a flat tone. The smile vanished. You would be wise not to anger me, wizard. You're hardly in a position to make demands. If you were going to kill me, you'd have done it by now. Crane let out a rueful laugh. <laughs> I suppose that's true enough. I was going to finish you and drop you in the lake, but imagine my surprise when I made some calls. And it turns out that you're infamous, I suggested. Tough, a good dancer. Crane showed me his teeth. Marketable. For an insignificant young man, you've managed to irritate a great many people. A little chill went through me. I kept it off my face. Crane's eyes glittered anyway. Ah, yes, fear. He inhaled deeply, his smile turning smug. You're smart enough to know when you are powerless, at least. In my experience, most wizards are fairly cowardly when push comes to shove. I felt a hot reply coming, but again I set my anger aside, temporarily. Crane was trying to push my buttons. He could only get away with it if I allowed him to do so. I met his dark eyes and let one corner of my mouth tilt up into a smile. In my experience, I replied, gaze unwavering, people who have underestimated me regretted it. I didn't feel like being drawn into a soul gaze with Crane, but I had little to lose. If nothing else, it might provide me with some valuable insight to his character. Crane's nerve broke first. 
He turned to walk away from me, pretending that he'd just received a call on his cell phone. He already had a new one. He stood in the shadows on the other side of the room. I spat more metal taste out of my mouth and wished I had a glass of water. Glau sat in a chair nearby, watching me. The little man had a gun resting in his lap, in hand and ready to go. A briefcase sat on the floor beside his chair. You, I said. Glau looked at me without any readable expression. You killed my dog, I said. Get your affairs in order. Something ugly flickered through his eyes. An idle threat. You will not live to see the dawn. You'd best hope I do, I said, because if I go down, I know where my death curse is going. Glau's lips peeled back from his teeth, and I swear to God that they were pointed. Not like a vampire's fangs or a ghoul's canines, but in solid, serrated triangles, like a shark. He rose, the gun twitching in his hand. Glau, snapped Crane. Glau froze for a second and then relaxed and let the gun fall to his side. Crane shoved the cell phone into his pocket and stalked over to me. Keep your tongue in your mouth, wizard. Or what? I asked. You'll kill me? From where I'm standing, that isn't a worst-case scenario. True, Crane murmured. He withdrew a small handgun from his pocket and, without so much as blinking, shot Rollins in the foot. The big cop jerked against the cuffs that held him, his face contorted in surprised pain, and he fell. The cuffs, fastened to the beam at shoulder level, cut cruelly into his wrists. Rollins got his legs underneath him and let out a string of sulfurous curse words. Crane regarded Rollins for a moment, smiled, and then pointed the gun at the cop's head. No! I shouted. It's entirely up to you, wizard, whether or not his children lose their father. Behave, he smiled again. We'll all be happier. Again, the rage threatened to drown any rational thought in my head. Threatening me is one thing. Threatening someone else to get to me is another. I'm sick of seeing decent people suffer. I'm sick of seeing them die. Patience, Harry. Calm. Rational. I was going to have to discourage Crane from this tactic with extreme prejudice as a deterrent to future weasels. But not yet. Keep him talking. Do you understand me? Crane said. I jerked my chin in a brief nod. He smirked. I want to hear you say it. I clenched my jaw and said, I understand. I'm so glad we had this talk, he said. There was a low buzzing sound, the almost silent alert of his cell phone, I suppose, and he walked away again, taking it out of his pocket and lifting it to his ear. How long have we been here? I asked Rollins. Hour, he mumbled. Hour and a half. I nodded. You okay? He let out a pained grunt. Tore open the stitches on my arm, he panted. Foot, I don't know. Can't feel it. Doesn't look like it's bleeding much. Hang in there, I said. We'll get out of this. Glau's rubbery lips stretched out into a silent little smile, though he looked at neither of us. Bull, Rollins said. If you can get out, you should go. Once he gets what he wants... He's going to kill me anyway. Don't stay on my account. You're siphoning my noble hero vibe, I told him. Cease and desist or I'll sue. 
Rollins tried to smile and leaned against the wall, weight off his injured foot. The lower portion of his left sleeve had soaked through with blood. Crane returned a moment later, smiling like butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. Start building more tax shelters, Glau. This is going rather well. Yeah? I asked. So, who's going to pony up for one Harry Dresden, slightly used? Crane showed me all his teeth. I'm holding an auction as we speak. A rather energetic one. Yeah? I asked. Who's leading? His smile widened. Why, Paolo Ortega's widow, Duchess Ariana of the Red Court. I suddenly felt cold all over. I was captured by the Red Court once, held in the dark by a crowd of hissing, monstrous shapes. They did things. There was nothing I could do about it. I still had the nightmares to remind me. Not every night, maybe, but often enough. Often enough. Crane closed his eyes and inhaled with a satisfied expression. She'll be quite creative when it comes to dealing with her husband's bane. I don't blame you for feeling terrified. Who wouldn't? Hey, I told him, grasping at straws. Call the White Council. If nothing else, maybe they'll run the bidding up for you. Crane laughed. I already have, he said. Hope twitched somewhere inside me. If the Council knew I was in trouble, then maybe they would be able to do something. They might be on the way even now. I needed to stall Crane, keep him occupied. Yeah? What'd they say? His smile widened. That the White Council's unyielding policy is one of non-negotiation with terrorists. Hope's corpse went through some post-mortem twitching. His phone buzzed again. He stepped away and spoke quietly, his back to us. After a moment, he snapped his fingers and said, Glau, get on the computer. The auction is closing in five minutes, and there's always a last-second rush. We'll need to verify an account. He turned back to the phone. No, unacceptable. A number to count only. I don't trust those people at PayPal. Hey, I protested. Are you selling me on eBay? Crane winked at me. Ironic, eh? Though I confess a bit of surprise. How do you know what it is? I read, I told him. Ah, he said. Glau, computer. Glau nodded, but said, They should not be unwatched. I can see them, Crane replied, irritation in his voice. Move. By his expression, Glau clearly did not agree with Crane, but he went. I licked my lips, struggling to think through my headache and anxiety and a solid lump of despair. There had to be a way out of this. There was always a way out. I had found ways out of desperate straits before. Of course, I'd had my magic available then. Damn those manacles. As long as they kept my power constrained, I would never be able to free myself or Rollins. So, moron, I thought to myself. Get rid of the manacles. Get around them. Do something. It's your only chance. How? I muttered out loud. I don't know a damn thing about them. Rollins blinked at me. I grimaced, shook my head at him, and closed my eyes. I shut away the distractions and turned my focus inward. It was easy to imagine an empty place. Flat, dark floor, illuminated from above by a single light, shining without apparent source. 
I imagined myself standing beneath it. Lashio, my image self, said quietly. I seek counsel. She appeared at once, stepping into the circle of light. She wore her most familiar form, the functional white tunic, the tall, lovely figure, but her golden hair now appeared as a waist-length sheet of deep auburn. She bowed deeply and murmured, I am here, my host. You changed your hair, I said. Her mouth flirted with a smile. There are too many blondes in your life, my host. I feared I would be lost in the press. I sighed. The manacles, I said. Do you know of them? She bowed again. Indeed, my host. They are of an ancient make, wrought by the trollsmiths of the Unseelie Court, and employed against those of your talents for a thousand years and more. I blinked at her. Fairies made those? I was dimly aware that, in my surprise, I had spoken the words aloud. I clenched my physical jaws shut and focused on the image me, briefly wondering just how badly cracked my engine block was going to get by trying to keep track of my own personal internal reality in addition to the actual threatening reality where Rollins and I were in deep trouble. Hell, for that matter, I supposed it was entirely possible that I already had snapped. It wasn't as though anyone but me had ever seen Lashiel. Perhaps, in addition to existing only in my head, she was all in my imagination, kind of a waking dream. For a minute, I thought about abandoning the wizarding biz and taking up a career that would let me crawl under rocks and hide professionally. You needn't attempt to keep your inner self separate from your physical self, Lashiel said in a reasonable tone. I should be happy to advise you from the outside, so to speak. Oh, no. I said, keeping all the conversation on the inside. I've got problems enough without adding a sentient hallucination to the mix. As you wish, Lashiel replied. You are, I take it, seeking a way to overcome the bindings of the thorn manacles. Obviously. Can it be done? All things are possible, Lashiel assured me, though some of them are extremely unlikely. How? I demanded of her. This is not the time to get coy with me. If I die, you're coming along for the ride. I am aware, she replied, arching an eyebrow. They are a crafting of fairy make, my host. Seek that which is bane to they who made it. Iron, I said at once, nodding. And sunlight. Trolls can't stand either. I opened my actual eyes and glanced around the interior of the garage. Sunlight's out of town for a few hours yet but we got lots and lots of iron. Rollins has a free hand. If I get a tool to him, maybe he could shatter a link of the manacle's chain. Then I could break his cuffs or something. Point of logic, the fallen angel pointed out. Given that you are not free to retrieve a tool, getting one to Rollins seems problematic. Yeah, but in addition, she continued, you are exhausted and it is reasonable to assume that Crane will finish his negotiations shortly and turn you over to one of your foes. You have insufficient time to recover your strength. I guess. She continued in the firm tone of a schoolteacher addressing a stubborn child. You have in the past expressed much frustration and doubt that your control of physical forces was precise enough to break handcuffs without breaking the person held in them. I sighed. True, but the only egress from this place is chained shut, and you do not have the key. It isn't. And finally, 
she finished. Lest you forget, you are being guarded by at least one supernatural being who will hardly stand gawking while you attempt escape. I glowered. Anyone ever told you that you have a very negative attitude? She arched a brow, the expression an invitation to continue the line of thought. I chewed on my lip and forged another couple of links in the chain of thought, which isn't helpful. But your ass is as deep in alligators as mine, and you want to help, so my stomach sank a little. You can offer me another option. She smiled, pleased. Very good. I don't want it, I said. Why ever not? Because a freaking fallen angel is offering it, that's why ever not. You're poison, lady. Don't think I don't know it. She lifted a long-fingered hand to me, palm out. I ask only that you hear me out. If what I offer is not to your liking, I will of course support your efforts to form an alternate plan. I upgraded the glower to a glare. She regarded me in perfect calm. Damn it. The best way to keep yourself from doing something grossly self-destructive and stupid is to avoid the temptation to do it. For example, it is far easier to fend off inappropriate amorous desires if one runs screaming from the room every time a pretty girl comes in. Which sounds silly, I know, but the same principle applies to everything else. If I let her talk to me, Lashiel would propose something calm and sane and reasonable and effective. It would require a small price of me, if nothing else by making me a tiny bit more dependent upon her advice and assistance. Whatever happened, she'd gain another smidgen of influence over me. Baby steps on the highway to hell. Lashiel was an immortal. She could afford patience whereas I could not afford temptation. It came down to this. If I didn't hear her out, and didn't get out of this mess, Rollins's blood would be on my hands. And whoever was behind the slaughter around the convention might well keep right on escalating. More people could die. Oh, and I'd wind up enjoying some kind of Torquemada-esque vacation with whichever fiend had the most money and the least lag. When a concept like that is an afterthought, you know things are bad. Lashiel watched me with patient blue eyes. All right, I told her. Let's hear it. Chapter 27 We plotted the fallen angel and me. It went fast. It turns out that holding an all-mental conversation gets things done at the literal speed of thought, without all those clunky phonemes to get in the way. Barely a minute had passed when I opened my eyes and said very quietly to Rollins, You're right. They'll kill you. We have to get out of here. The cop gave me a pained grimace and nodded. How? I struggled and sat up. I rolled my shoulders a little, trying to get some blood flowing through my arms, which had been manacled together underneath me. I tested the chain. It had been slipped through an inverted U-bolt in the concrete floor. The links rattled metallically as they slid back and forth. I checked Crane at the noise. The man kept speaking intently into his cell phone and took no apparent notice of the movement. I'm going to slip one of these manacles off my wrist, I told him. 
I nodded at a discarded old rolling tool cabinet. There should be something in there I can use. I'll cut us both out. Rollins shook his head. Those two gonna stand there watching while we do all that? I'll do it fast, I said. Then what? I kill the lights, and we get out. Doors chained shut, Rollins said. Let me worry about that. Rollins squinted. He looked very tired. Why not, he said, nodding. Why not? I nodded and closed my eyes, slowed my breathing, and began to concentrate. Hey, Rollins said. How you gonna slip your cuffs? You ever heard about yogis out east? Yogi Berra, he said at once, and Yogi Bear. Not those yogis, as in snake charmers. Oh, right. They spend a lifetime learning to control their body. They can do some fairly amazing stuff. Rollins nodded. Like fold themselves up into a gym bag and sit inside it at the bottom of a pool for half an hour. Right, I said. I followed Lashiel's instructions, sinking into deeper and deeper focus. Some of them can collapse the bones in their hands, use their muscles and tendons to alter tensions, change the shape. I focused on my left hand and for a moment was a bit grateful that it was already so badly maimed and mostly numb. What I was about to do, even with Lashiel's instruction, was going to hurt like hell. Keep an eye out and be ready. He nodded, holding still and not turning his head toward either Crane or Glau. I dismissed him, the warehouse, my headache, and everything else that wasn't my hand from my perceptions. I had a general idea of what was supposed to happen, but I didn't have any practical second-to-second -second knowledge of it. It was a terribly odd sensation, as though I were a skilled pianist whose fingers had suddenly forgotten their familiarity with the keys. Not too quickly, murmured Lashiel's voice in my head. Your muscles and joints have not been conditioned to this. There was an odd sensation in my thoughts, somehow similar to abruptly remembering how to tie a knot that had once been thoughtlessly familiar. Like this, Lashiel's presence whispered, and that same familiarity suddenly thrummed down my arm. I flexed my thumb, made a rippling motion of my fingers, and tightened every muscle in my hand in a sudden clench. I dislocated my thumb with a sickly little crackle of damaged flesh. For a second I thought the pain would drop me unconscious. No, Lashiel's voice said. You must control this. You must escape. I know, I snarled back at her in my mind. Apparently nerve damage from burns doesn't stop you from feeling it when someone pulls your fingers out of their sockets. Someone, Lashiel said. You did it to yourself, my host. Would you back off and give me room to work? That's ridiculous, Lashiel replied, but the sense of her presence abruptly retreated. I took deep, quiet breaths and twisted my left hand. My flesh screamed protest, but I only embraced the pain and continued to move slow and steady. I got the fingers of my right hand to lightly grasp the manacle on my left wrist and began to draw my hand steadily against the cold, binding circle of metal. My hand folded in a way that was utterly alien in sensation, and the screaming pain of it stole my breath. But it slipped an inch beneath the metal cuff. 
I twisted my hand again, in exactly the same motion, never letting up the pressure, working to encompass the pain as something to aid me rather than distract. I slipped an inch closer to freeing my hand. The pain became more and more intense, despite my efforts to divert it, like an afternoon sun that burns brightly under your eyes even though they're closed. Only a moment more. I only needed to remain silent and focused for a few more seconds. I bore the pain, I kept up the pressure, and abruptly I felt the cold metal of the cuff flick over the outside of my thumb, one of the few spots on my fingers where much tactile sensation remained. My hand came free, and I clutched tightly to the empty cuff with my right hand to keep it from rattling. I opened my eyes and glanced around the garage. Crane paced back and forth in conversation on his phone. I waited until his back was mostly turned to move. Then I rose and slipped the chain through the U-bolt on the floor until the circle of the cuff pressed against the bolt. I was still tethered by a chain, perhaps a foot long, but I moved as silently as I could and reached out with my throbbing left hand for the wheeled tool cabinet. I had trouble getting my fingers to cooperate, but I slipped the cabinet open. The tools inside it had been there for a long time, several years at least. They were spotted with rust. I could only see about half the cabinet from where I crouched, and there wasn't anything there that could help me. I hated to do it, but I felt around the unseen portion of the cabinet with my clumsy fingers. I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to feel the tool even if my fingers found it and even more frightened by the knowledge that I might knock something over and draw attention. My hand shook, but I felt through the cabinet as quickly and lightly as I could, starting at the top and moving down. On the floor of the cabinet, I felt an object, the handle of some kind of tool. I drew it out as quietly as I could and found myself holding a hacksaw. My heart leapt with excitement. I returned to more or less my original position, with my captors seemingly none the wiser, and took a grip on the saw. My distorted thumb hurt abominably, so I took the hacksaw in my right hand, took a deep breath, and then began slicing at the chain link immediately below the empty manacle. I could only cut in strokes eight or nine inches long because of the chain still attached to my right wrist, and it made a low, buzzing racket that could not be mistaken for anything but a saw. I was sure I would not have time to cut myself free, but the heavy-duty steel of the hacksaw's blade ripped into the silvery metal chain as if it were made of pine. Three, four, five strokes of the hacksaw, and the link parted. I jerked hard with my right hand, and the chain slid through the U-bolt, the broken link snapping as the cuffs struck the bolt. I rose, free. Crane let out a sudden, startled sound, dropped his cell phone, and went for his gun. There was no time to free Rollins, so I tossed him the hacksaw and then threw myself to one side as Crane let off a shot. Sparks leapt up from the rolling cabinet surface, and a rush of adrenaline made the pains of my body vanish. I kept my head down as low as I could and scurried to one side, attempting to put the bulk of an old rusted pickup truck between Crane and me. I reached for my magic, but the cuff, still attached to my arm, reacted with that same burst of agony, splintering my concentration. I caught a glimpse of movement. Crane circled to one side, looking for a clear line of fire.
I maneuvered like a squirrel, keeping the truck between us and crouching low to deny him a clean shot. I went for the passenger door, hoping to find something, anything I could use to defend myself in the truck. Locked. Glow! Crane shouted. His second shot shattered the truck's passenger window, the bullet passing within a few inches of my head. I reached up, unlocked the truck's door, and swung it open. The cab was cluttered with empty cigarette packs, discarded fast food wrappers, crushed beer cans, a heavy-duty claw hammer, and three or four glass beer bottles. Perfect. I clutched the hammer's wrapped steel handle in my teeth, scooped up the bottles, and threw one at the far side of the garage. It shattered loudly. I rose at once, another bottle ready, and hurled it with as much force as I could. The first bottle had caused Crane to snap his head to one side, looking for the source of the sound. He looked away from me for only a second, but it was distraction enough to allow me to throw. The bottle tumbled end over end and smashed into the work lamp with a crash of breaking glass. Sparks showered up in a brief cloud of electric outrage, and then heavy darkness slammed down upon us. Now, I thought to Lascio. Darkness vanished, replaced with lines and planes of silver light that outlined the garage, the truck, the tool cabinets and workbenches, as well as the doors and windows and the bolt on the wall where Rollins was chained. I was not actually seeing the garage, of course, for there was no physical light for my eyes to see. Instead, I was looking at an illusion. The portion of Lashiel in my head was capable of creating illusory sensations of almost any kind, though if I suspected any tampering, I could defend myself against it easily enough. This illusion, however, was not meant to deceive. She'd placed it there to help me gleaning the precise dimensions and arrangements of the garage from my own senses and projecting them to my eyes to enable me to move in the dark. It wasn't a perfect illusion, of course. It was merely a model. It didn't keep track of animate objects, and if anything moved around, I wouldn't know it until I'd knocked myself unconscious on it, but I wouldn't need it for long. I ran for Rollins. Glow! Crane screamed, no more than ten or twelve feet away. Cover the door! I flung the third bottle to the floor at my feet. It was an exceedingly odd sensation, for the bottle was outlined in silver light until it left my hand. It vanished into the darkness and shattered on the floor near me. There was a moment of frozen silence, broken only by the rasp of a hacksaw against Rollins's cuffs. Crane took a couple of steps toward me, then hesitated, and though I could not see him, I could sense the hesitation. Then he moved again, away from me, probably assuming I was attempting another distraction. My lips stretched into a wolfish smile, and I padded to Rollins, my steps sure and steady, even in the total darkness. I reached the bolt on the steel beam and found Rollins standing beneath it, breathing hard, sawing as fast as he could. He jumped when I touched his shoulder, but I took the hammer in hand and whispered, It's Harry. Get your head down. He did. I looked up at the silvery illusion of the bolt, steadied my breathing, and drew the hammer back very slowly, focusing upon that movement and nothing else. Then I hissed out a breath and struck at the bolt with every ounce of force I could physically muster. I'm not a weightlifter, but no one's ever accused me of being a sissy, either. More importantly, 
Years and years of my metaphysical studies and practice had given me considerable skill at focus and concentration. The hammer struck the bolt that held the other ring of Rollins's cuffs. Sparks flew. The bolt, as rusted and ruined as the rest of the building, snapped. Rollins dragged me to the ground a heartbeat before Crane's pistol thundered again from the far side of the garage. A bullet caromed off the metal beam with an ugly, high-pitched whine. Come on, I hissed. I seized Rollins's shirt. He grunted and stumbled blindly after me, trying to be quiet, but given his injuries, there was only so much he could do. Speed would have to serve where stealth was not available. I hauled him directly across the garage floor, skipping around a mechanic's pit and several stacks of old tires. Where are we going? Rollins gasped. Where's the door? We are taking the door, I whispered, which was true. I wasn't sure that we'd have a way out of the garage, but we certainly wouldn't leave via the door. The full moon garage had been abandoned since the disappearance of its previous owners, a gang of lycanthropes with a notable lack of common sense when it came to choosing enemies. It wasn't as big a coincidence as it seemed that Crane was using the same building. It was old, abandoned, had no windows, was close to the convention center, and easy to get in and out of. More to the point, it had been a place where fairly horrible things happened, and the ugly energy of them still lingered in the air. I wasn't sure what Crane and Glau were, exactly, but a place like this would feel comfortable and familiar to many denizens of the dark side. I'd been held captive in the building before, and my means of egress was still there. A hole beneath the edge of the cheap corrugated metal wall, dug down into the earth and out into the gravel parking lot by a pack of wolves. I got to the wall and knelt down to check Lashiel's mental model against the reality it represented. The hole was still there. If anything, the years had worn it even deeper and wider. I shoved Rollins's hands down to let him feel it. Go, I whispered, under the wall and out. He grunted assent and started hauling himself through it. Rollins was built a lot heavier than me, but he fit through the time-widened hole. I crouched down to follow him, but heard running footsteps just behind me. I ducked to one side, my eyes now adjusting enough to let me see faint, ambient city light trickling through the hole. I saw a vague shape in the darkness, and then saw Glau's hands seize Rollins's wounded foot. Rollins screamed. I lunged forward and smashed the claw hammer down onto Glau's forearm. It hit with brutal force and a sound of breaking bone. Glau let out a wild, falsetto, ululating scream like that of some kind of primitive warrior. The hammer jerked out of my hands. I heard a whirr in the air and ducked in time to avoid Glau returning the favor. I twisted, swinging the chain still attached to the remaining manacle along at what I estimated to be Glau's eye level. The chain hit. He let out another shrieking cry, falling backward. I dove for the hole and wriggled through it like a greased weasel. Crane's gun went off again, punching a hole in the wall ten feet away. Running footsteps retreated and metal clinked. I heard myself whimpering and had a flashback to any number of nightmares where I could not move swiftly enough to escape the danger. Any second I expected to take a bullet, or for Glau to lay into me with a hammer or his shark-like teeth. Rawlins grabbed my wrist and pulled me through. I got to my feet, 
looking around the little gravel lot wildly for the nearest cover, several stacks of old tires. I didn't have to point at it for Rollins to get the idea. We ran for it. Rollins's wounded leg almost gave out, and I slowed to help him, looking back for our pursuers. Glau wriggled out of the hole just as we had, rose to a crouch, and threw the claw hammer. It tumbled end over end, flying as swiftly as a major league fastball, and hit me in the ass. A shock went through me on impact, and my balance wavered as half of my lower body went numb. I tried to clutch at Rollins for balance, but the hand I distorted wasn't strong enough to hold, and the force of the blow threw me down to the gravel. The impact tore open all the defenses I'd rallied against my body's various pains, and for a second I could barely move, much less flee. Glau drew a long, curved blade from his belt, something vaguely Arabic in origin. He bounded after us. It was hopeless, but Rollins and I tried to run anyway. There were a couple of light footsteps, a blurring figure running far too swiftly to be human, and Crane kicked my functional leg out from underneath me. I dropped. He delivered a vicious blow to Rollins's belly. The cop went down, too. Crane, his face pale and furious, snarled. I warned you to behave, wizard. He lifted the gun and pointed it at Rollins's head. You've just killed this man. Chapter 28 a dark figure stepped out of the deep shadows behind the stacks of tires, pointed a sawed-off shotgun at Glau, and said, Howdy. Glau whirled to face the newcomer, hand already lifting the knife. The interloper pulled the trigger. Thunder filled the air. The blast threw Glau to the gravel like an enormous flopping fish. Thomas stepped out into the wan light of a distant street lamp, dressed all in loose black clothing, including my leather duster, which fell all the way to his ankles. His hair was ragged and wind-tossed, and his gray eyes were cold as he worked the action on the shotgun, ejecting the spent shell and levering a fresh one into the chamber. The barrel of the shotgun snapped a crane. Son of a bitch. Now I knew who'd been following me around town. You... Crane said in a hollow-sounding voice, staring at Thomas. Me, Thomas agreed, insouciant cheer thick in his voice. Lose the gun, Madrigal. Crane's lip lifted into a sneer, but he did lower the pistol and drop it to the ground. Kick it over here, Thomas said. Crane did it, ignoring me completely. I thought you'd be dead by now, cuz... God knows you made enemies enough within the house, much less the rest of the court. I get by, Thomas drawled. Then he used a toe to flick the gun over to me. Crane's eyes widened in surprise, then narrowed. I picked up the revolver and checked the cylinder. My distorted left hand functioned, weakly, but it hurt like hell, and would until I could get enough quiet and focus to get everything back into its proper place. My headache intensified to a fine, distracting agony as I bent over, but I ignored that too. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of trauma, I will fear no concussion. Crane's revolver held freshly loaded rounds, all six of them. I put them back and checked on Rollins. Between the pain of his recent injuries and the strain of our flight and recapture, the big cop did not look well. Isn't bad, he said quietly. Just hurts. Tired. 
Sit tight, I told him. We'll get you out of here. He nodded and lay there, watching developments, his eyes only half aware. I made sure he wasn't bleeding too badly, then rose, pointed the gun at Crane, and took position between him and Rawlins. How's it going, Dresden? Thomas asked. Took you long enough, I said. Thomas grinned, but it didn't touch his eyes. His gaze never left Crane. Have you ever met my cousin, Madrigal Wraith? I knew he didn't look like a Darby, I said. Thomas nodded. Wasn't that a movie with Janet Monroe? And Sean Connery. Thought so, Thomas said. Madrigal Wraith watched the exchange through narrowed eyes. Maybe it was a trick of the light, but he looked paler now, his features almost eerily fine. Or maybe now that Thomas had identified him as a white court vampire, I could correctly interpret the warnings my instincts had shrieked at me during our first talk. There was little but contempt in Madrigal's eyes as he stared at my brother. You have no idea what you're getting yourself involved in, cuz. I'll not surrender this prize to you. Oh, but you will, Thomas said in his best snidely whiplash villain voice. Crane's eyes flickered with something hot and furious. Don't push me, little cuz. I'll make you regret it. Thomas's laugh rang out, full of scorn and confidence. <laughs> you couldn't make water run downhill. Walk away while you still can. Don't be stupid, Madrigal replied. Do you know what kind of money he's worth? Is that the kind that spends in hell? Thomas asked. Because if you keep this up, you'll need it. Madrigal sneered. You'd kill family in cold blood, Thomas? You? There are statues that don't have a poker face as good as Thomas's. Maybe you haven't put it together yet, Madrigal. I'm banished, remember? You aren't family. Madrigal regarded Thomas for a long minute before he said, You're bluffing. Thomas looked at me, a quality of inquiry to his expression, and said, He thinks I'm bluffing. Make sure he can talk, I said. Cool, Thomas said, and shot Madrigal in the feet. The light and thunder of the shotgun's blast rolled away, leaving Madrigal on the ground, hissing out a thready shriek of agony. He curled up to clutch at the gory ruins of his ankles and feet. Blood, a few shades too pale to be human, spattered the gravel. Touché, grunted Rollins, a certain satisfaction in his tone. It took Madrigal a while to control himself and find his voice. You're dead he whispered, pain making the words quiver and shake. You gutless little swine! You're dead! Uncle will kill you for this! My half-brother smiled and worked the action of the shotgun again. I doubt my father cares, he replied. He wouldn't mind losing a nephew, particularly not one who's been consorting with scum like House Malvora. Aha, I said quietly, putting two and two together. Now I get it. He's like them. Like what? Thomas asked. A phobophage, I said quietly. He feeds on fear, the way you feed on lust. Thomas's expression turned a bit nauseated. Yes, a lot of the Malvora do. 
Madrigal's pale, strained face twisted into a vicious smile. You should try it some night, cuz. It's sick, Mad, Thomas said. There was an almost ghostly sense of sadness or pity in his tone, so subtle that I would not have seen it before living with him. Hell, I doubt he realized it was there himself. It's sick, and it's made you sick. You feed on mortal desires for the little death, Madrigal said, his eyes half-closing. I feed on their desire for the real thing. We both feed. In the end, we both kill. There's no difference. The difference is that once you've started, you can't let them go running off to report you to the authorities, Thomas said. You keep them until they're dead. Madrigal let out a laugh, unsettling for how genuine it sounded, given his situation. I got the sneaking suspicion that the vampire was a couple of peeps short of an Easter basket. Thomas, Thomas, Madrigal murmured, always the self-righteous little bleeding heart, so concerned for the bucks and toes, as though you never tasted them yourself, never killed them yourself. Thomas's expression went opaque again, but his eyes were flat with sudden anger. Madrigal's smile widened at the response. His teeth shone white in the evening's gloom. I've been feeding well, whereas you, well, without your dark-eyed whore to take you without warning, without a flicker of expression on Thomas's face, the shotgun roared again and the blast took Madrigal across the knees. More two-pale blood spattered the gravel. Holy crap. Madrigal went prone again, body arching in agony, the pain choking his scream down to an anemic little echo of a real shriek. Thomas planted his boot on Madrigal's neck, his expression cold and calm, but for the glittering rage in his eyes. He pumped the neck shell in and held the shotgun in one hand, shoving the barrel against Madrigal's cheekbone. Madrigal froze, quivering in agony, eyes wide and desperate. Never, Thomas murmured very quietly, ever speak of Justine. Madrigal said nothing, but my instincts screamed again. Something in the way he held himself, something in his eyes, told me that he was acting. He'd maneuvered the conversation to Justine deliberately. He was playing on Thomas's feelings for Justine, distracting us. I spun to see Glau on his feet, just as though he hadn't been given a lethal dose of buckshot in the chest from ten feet away. He shot across the parking lot at a full sprint, running for the van parked about fifty feet away. He ran in utter silence, without the crunch of gravel or the creak of shoes, and for a second I thought I saw maybe an inch and a half of space between where he planted his running feet and the ground. Thomas, I said, Glau's running. Relax, Thomas said, and his eyes never left Madrigal. I heard the scrabble of claws on gravel, and then Mouse shot out of the shadows that had hidden Thomas. He flashed by me in what was for him a relaxed lope, but as Glau approached the van, Mouse accelerated to a full sprint. In the last couple of steps before Glau reached the van, I thought I saw something forming around the great dog's forequarters, tiny flickers of pale colors almost like St. Elmo's fire. 
Then Mouse threw himself into a leap. I saw Glau's expression reflected in the van's windshield, his two wide eyes goggling in total surprise. Then Mouse slammed his chest and shoulder into Glau's back like a living battering ram. The force of the impact took Glau's balance completely and sent the man into a vicious impact with the van's dented front bumper. Glau hit hard, hard enough that I heard bones breaking from fifty feet away, and his head whiplashed down onto the hood and rebounded with neck-breaking force. Glau bounced off the van's front bumper and hood and landed in a limp, boneless pile on the ground. Mouse landed, skidded on the gravel, and spun to face Glau. He watched the down man for a few seconds, legs stiff. His back legs dug twice at the gravel, throwing up dust and rocks in challenge. Glau never stirred. Mouse sniffed and then let out a sneeze that might almost have been actual words. So there. Then the dog turned and trotted right over to me, favoring one leg slightly, grinning a proud canine grin. He shoved his broad head under my hand in his customary demand for an ear scratching. I did it while something released in my chest with a painful little snapping sensation. My dog was all right. Maybe my eyes missed it up a little. I dropped to one knee and slid an arm around the mutt's neck. Good dog, I told him. Mouse's tail wagged proudly at the praise, and he leaned against me. I made sure my eyes were clear, then looked up to find Madrigal staring at the dog in shock and fear. That isn't a dog, the vampire whispered. But he'll do anything for a Scooby snack, I said. Spill it, Madrigal. What are you doing in town? How are you involved with the attacks? He licked his lips and shook his head. I don't have to talk to you, he said. And you don't have time to make me. The gunshots, even in this neighborhood, the police will be here soon. True, I said. So here's how it's going to work. Thomas, when you hear a siren, pull the trigger. Madrigal made a choking sound. I smiled. I want answers, that's all. Give them to me and we go away. Otherwise, I shrugged and made a vague gesture at Thomas. Mouse stared at him and a steady growl bubbled from his throat. Madrigal shot a look over at the fallen Glau, who, by God, was moving his arms and legs in an aimless, stunned fashion. Mouse's growl grew louder and Madrigal tried to squirm a little farther from my dog. Even if I did talk, what's to keep you from killing me once I've told you? Madrigal, Thomas said quietly. You're a vicious little bitch, but you're still family. I'd rather not kill you. We left your Jan alive. Play ball and both of you walk. You would side with this mortal buck against your own kind, Thomas? My own kind booted me out, Thomas replied. I take work where I can get it. Pariah vampire and pariah wizard, Madrigal murmured. I suppose I can see the advantages, regardless of how the war turns out. He watched Thomas steadily for a moment and then looked at me. I want your oath on it. You have it, I said. Answer me honestly and I let you leave Chicago unharmed. He swallowed and his eyes flicked to the shotgun still pressed to his cheek. My oath as well, he said. I'll speak true. 
And that settled that. Pretty much everything on the supernatural side of the street abided by a rigid code of traditional conduct that respected things like one's duties as a host, one's responsibility as a guest, and the integrity of a sworn oath. I could trust Madrigal's oath once he'd openly made it. Probably. Thomas looked at me. I nodded. He eased his boot off Madrigal's neck and took a step back, holding his shotgun at his side, though his stance became no less wary. Madrigal sat up, wincing at his legs. There was a low, cracking kind of noise coming from them. The bleeding had already stopped. I could see portions of his calf where the pants had been ripped away. The skin there actually bubbled and moved. And as I watched, a round lump the size of a pea formed in the skin and burst, expelling a round buckshot that fell to the parking lot. Let's start simple, I said. Where's the key to the manacles? Van, he replied, his tone calm. My stuff? Van. Keys. I held out my hand. Madrigal drew a rental car key ring from his pocket and tossed it to me underhand. Thomas, I said, holding them up. You sure? he asked. Mouse can watch him. I want this fucking thing off my arm. Thomas took the keys and paced over to the van. He paused to idly check his hair in the reflection in the windshield before opening the van. Vanity, thy name is Vampire. Now for the real question, I told Madrigal. How are you involved with the attacks? I am not involved, he said quietly. Not in the planning and not in the execution. I've been scheduled here for more than a year. Doesn't scream alibi to me, I said. I'm not, he insisted. Of course I thought them entertaining, and yes, the... His eyelids half lowered and his voice went suddenly husky. The storm of it, the horror, empty night, so sweet, all those souls in fear. Get off the creepy psychic vampire train, I said. Answer the question. He gave me an ugly smile and gestured at his healing legs. You see, I fed and fed well. Tonight, particularly. But you have my word, wizard, that whatever these creatures are, they are none of my doing. I was merely a spectator. If that's true, I said, then why the hell did you grab me and bring me here? For gain, he said, and for enjoyment. I don't let any buck talk to me as you did. Since I'd planned on replying to your arrogance anyway, I thought I might as well turn a profit on it at the same time. God bless America, I said. Thomas returned with my magical gear, staff, backpack, a paper sack with my various foci in it, and an old-fashioned key with big teeth. I popped it into the slot on the manacles, fumbling with the stiff, uncooperative fingers on my left hand, and got the thing off my arm. My skin tingled for a moment, and I reached experimentally for my magic. No white out of pain. I was a wizard again. I put on my amulet, bracelet, and ring. I felt the backpack to make sure Bob's skull was still in there. It was, and I breathed a mental sigh of relief. 
Bob's arcane knowledge was exceeded only by his inability to distinguish between moral right and wrong. His knowledge in the wrong hands could be dangerous as hell. No, I said quietly. It isn't a coincidence that you're there, Madrigal. I just told you I believe you, I said. But I don't think it was a coincidence either. I think you were there for a reason, maybe one you didn't know. Madrigal frowned at that and looked, for a moment, a little bit worried. I pursed my lips and thought aloud, You're high profile. You're known to feed on fear. You're at war with the White Council. Two and two make four. Four and four make eight. I glanced up at Thomas and said, Whoever it is behind the phage attacks, they wanted me to think that Darby here was it. Thomas's eyebrows went up in sudden understanding. Madrigal's supposed to take the fall. Madrigal's face turned even whiter. What do you... He didn't get to finish the question. Glau screamed. He screamed in pure, shrieking terror, his voice pitched as high as a woman's. Everyone turned in surprise, and we were in time to see something haul the wounded Glau out of sight on the other side of the van. Red sprayed into the air. A piece of him, probably an arm or a leg, flew out from behind the van and tumbled for several paces before falling heavily to earth. Glau's voice abruptly went silent. Something arched up from behind the van and landed, rolling. It bumped over the gravel and came to a stop. Glau's head. It had been physically ripped from his body, the flesh and bone torn and wrenched apart by main strength. His face was stretched into a scream, showing his shark-like teeth, and his eyes were glazed and frozen in death. Orange light rose up behind the van, and in something... A creature, perhaps ten or eleven feet in height, rose up and turned to face us. It was dressed all in rags, like some kind of enormous hobo, and was inhumanly slender. Its head was a bulbous thing, and it took me a second to recognize it as a pumpkin, carved with evil eyes like a jack-o'-lantern's. Those eyes glowed with a sullen red flame and flashed intensely for a moment as it spied us. Then it took a long step over the hood of the van and came at us with strides that looked slow but ate up yards with every step. Good God, Rollins breathed. Mouse snarled. Harry, Thomas said. Another phage in a horror movie costume, the scarecrow this time, I murmured. I'll handle it. I took my staff in hand and stepped out to meet the oncoming phage. I called up the hellfire once more, as I had against the other phage, until my skin felt like it was about to fly apart. I gathered up energy for a strike more deadly than I had used earlier in the night, and I cried out and unleashed my will against the creature, hitting it as hard as I possibly could. The resulting cannonball of blazing force struck the scarecrow head-on while it was twenty feet away, exploding into a column of searing red flame, an inferno of heat and light that went off with enough force to throw the thing halfway across Lake Michigan. Imagine my surprise when the scarecrow stepped through my spell as if it had not existed. Its eyes regarded me with far too much awareness, and its arm moved, striking snake fast. 
fingers as thick and tough as pumpkin vines suddenly closed around my throat, and in a rush of sudden, terrifying understanding, I realized that this phage was stronger than the little one I'd beaten at the hotel. This creature was far older, larger, stronger, more dangerous. My vision darkened to a star-spangled tunnel as the scarecrow wrapped its other hand around my left thigh, lifted me to the horizontal over its head, and started to rip me in half. Chapter 29 Harry! Thomas shouted. I heard a rasp of steel and saw Thomas draw an old U.S. cavalry saber from inside my duster. He tossed the shotgun to the wounded Rollins and rushed forward. Mouse beat him there. The big dog snarled and threw himself at the scarecrow, obliging the creature to release my leg so that it could swing a spindly arm and fist at my dog. The scarecrow was strong. It struck Mouse in mid-leap and batted him into the corrugated steel wall of the full moon garage like he was a tennis ball. There was a crash, and Mouse bounced off the wall and landed heavily on his side, leaving a dent in the steel where he'd hit. He thrashed his legs and managed to rise to a wobbly stand. Mouse had given Thomas an opening, and my brother leapt to the top of an old metal trash bin, then bounded fifteen feet through the air, whipping the sword down on the wrist of the arm that held me in choke. Thomas was never weak, but he was tapping into his powers as a vampire of the white court as he attacked, and his skin was a luminous white, his eyes metallic silver. The blow parted the scarecrow's hand from its arm and dropped me a good five or six feet to the ground. Even as I fell, I knew I had to move away from the creature, and fast. I managed to have my balance more or less in place when I hit, and I fell into a roll, using the momentum to help me rise to a running start. But a problem developed. That damned scarecrow's hand had not ceased choking me and had not lost any of its strength. My headlong retreat turned into a drunken stumble as my air ran out, and I clutched at the tough vine fingers, crushing my windpipe shut. I went to my knees and one hand, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw Rollins lift the shotgun and begin pumping rounds into the oncoming scarecrow from where he sat on the ground. The rounds slowed the oncoming creature, but they did nothing to harm it. My throat was on fire and I knew I had only seconds of consciousness left. In pure desperation, I took my staff and, in a dizzying gesture, dragged it through a complete circle in the gravel at my feet. I touched my hand to the circle, willing power into it, and felt the field of magic that it formed spring up around me in a silent, invisible column. The circle's power cut the scarecrow's severed hand off from the main body of the creature, and like the phage in the hallway of the hotel, it abruptly transformed into transparent jelly that splattered down onto the gravel beneath my chin and soaked my shirt in sticky goo. I sucked in a breath of pure euphoria, and though I was on my knees, I turned to face the scarecrow and did not retreat. So long as the circle around me maintained its integrity, there was no way for the phage to get to me. It should buy me a little time to get the air back into my lungs and to work out my next attack. The scarecrow let out an angry hissing sound and swung its stump of an arm down at Rollins. The veteran cop saw it coming and rolled out of the way as though he were an agile young man, barely avoiding the blow. Thomas used an old metal oil drum as a platform for another leap. 
this time driving his heels into the scarecrow's back at what would have been the base of its spine on a human. The impact sent the scarecrow to the ground, but as it landed, it kicked a long leg at Thomas and struck his saber arm, breaking it with a wet snap of bone. Thomas howled, scrambling back, leaving his fallen sword on the ground. The scarecrow whirled back to me, eyes blazing with an alien rage, and I could swear that I saw recognition in them. It looked from me to Rollins, and then with a hissing cackle, it went after the cop. Damn it. I waited until the last second and then broke the circle with a sweep of my foot, snatching up Thomas's sword. I charged forward. The scarecrow whirled the moment the circle went down, sweeping out a great fist that could have broken my neck, but it hadn't expected me to charge, and I was inside its reach before it realized what I had done. I let out a shout and struck at one of the scarecrow's legs, but it was quicker than I thought, and the saber's blade barely clipped the thick, sturdy, viney limb. The scarecrow let out a hiss, loud and sharp enough to hurt my ears, and tried to kick me, but I slipped to one side just in time, and the blow intended for me instead scattered several stacks of tires. Madrigal Wraith rose up from among the fallen tires, only a couple of feet away from me, shrieking with fear. The scarecrow's eyes blazed into painfully bright flames when it saw Madrigal, and it started for him. Get to the van! I shouted, hopping back to stand beside Madrigal. We need wheels if we're going to get away from this! Without so much as a second's hesitation, Madrigal stuck out his hand and shoved me between himself and the monster, sending me into a sprawl at the scarecrow's feet while he turned to flee in the opposite direction. Before I hit the ground, I was already calling power into my shield bracelet, and I twisted to land on my right side, holding my left hand and its shield up. If I'd been half a second slower, the scarecrow would have stomped its foot down onto my skull. Instead, it hit the half-sphere of my sorceress shield with so much force that the shield sent off a flare of light and heat, so that it looked like an enormous blue-white bowl above me. Furious, the scarecrow seized an empty barrel and hurled it down at my shield. I hardened my will as it struck, and turned the force of the throw, sending the barrel bouncing over the gravel, but it had gotten closer to me than the first blow. A second later, its fist hammered down, and then it found a bent aluminum ladder in a pile of junk and slammed it down at me. I managed to block the attacks, but each one came a little closer to my hide. I didn't dare to let up my concentration for a moment in an effort to move away. The damn thing was so strong. I wouldn't survive a mistake. A single blow from one of its limbs or improvised weapons would probably kill me outright. But if I didn't get away, the creature would hammer through the shield anyway. Mouse charged in again, on three legs this time, bellowing an almost leonine battle roar as he did so. The scarecrow struck out at Mouse. But the dog's attack had been a feint, and he avoided the blow while remaining just out of the scarecrow's reach. The scarecrow turned back to me, but Mouse rushed it again, forcing the scarecrow to abandon its attack lest Mouse close in from behind. I rolled clear of the scarecrow's reach and regained my feet, sword in my right hand, shining blue shield blazing on my left. I've been throwing an awful lot of magic around tonight and I was feeling it. My legs trembled, and I wasn't sure how much more I could do. Mouse and I circled the monster opposite one another, playing wolf pack to the scarecrow's bear, each of us menacing the creature's flanks when it turned to the other. We held our own for maybe a minute, 
but it was a losing bet long term. Mouse was moving on three legs and tiring swiftly. I wasn't much better off. The second one of us slipped or moved too slowly, the scarecrow would drive us into the ground like a fence post. A wet, red, squishy fence post. Light shone abruptly on my back. An engine roared and a car horn blared. I hopped to one side. Madrigal's rental van shot past me and slammed into the scarecrow. It knocked the creature sprawling all the way across the parking lot to the edge of the street. Thomas leaned his head out of the window and shouted, Get in! I hurried to oblige him, snatching up my staff on the way, and Mouse was hard on my heels. We piled into the van, where I found Rollins unconscious in the back. I slammed a side door shut. Thomas threw up a cloud of gravel whirling the van around, banged over the concrete medium between the gravel lot and the street, and shot off down the road. A wailing, whistling shriek of rage and frustration split the air behind us. I checked out the window and found the scarecrow pursuing us. When Thomas reached an intersection and turned, the scarecrow cut across the corner, bounding over a phone booth with ease, and slammed into the back quarter of the van. The noise was horrible, and the van wobbled, tires screeching and slithering, while Thomas fought to control the slide. The scarecrow shrieked and slammed the van again. The wounded mouse added his battle roar to the din. Do something! Thomas shouted. Like what? I screamed. It's immune to my fire! Another crunch blasted my ears, rocked the van, and sent me sprawling over Rollins. We're gonna find traffic in a minute, Thomas called. Figure something out! I looked frantically around the van's interior, trying to think of something. There was little enough there. Glau's briefcase, an overnight bag containing presumably Glau's shower kit and foot powder, and two flats of expensive spring water and plastic bottles. I could hear the scarecrow's heavy footsteps outside the van now, and a motion in the corner of my eye made me look up to see its blazing, terrifying eyes gazing into the van's window. Left! I howled at Thomas. The van rocked, tires protesting. The scarecrow drove its arm through the van's side window, and its long fingers missed me by an inch. Do something. I had to do something. Fire couldn't hurt the thing. I could summon wind, but it was large enough to resist anything but my largest gale, and I didn't have the magical muscle to manage that, exhausted as I was. It would have to be something small, something limited, something clever. I stared at the bottled water, then thought of something. Get ready for a U-turn! I shouted. What? Thomas yelled. I picked up both flats of bottles and shoved them out the broken window. They vanished, and I checked out the rear window to see them tumbling along in our wake, still held together by heavy plastic wrapping. I took up my blasting rod, pointed it at them, and called up the smallest and most intense point of heat I knew how, releasing it with a whispered, Fuego! The rear window glass flashed. A hole the size of a peanut suddenly appeared, the glass dribbling down, molten. Bottles exploded as their contents heated to boiling in under a second spattering that whole section of road with a thin and expensive layer of water. Now, I hollered, you turn! Thomas promptly did something that made the tires howl and almost threw me out the broken window. I got an up-close look at the scarecrow as the van slewed into a bootlegger reverse. It reached for me, but its claws only raked down the van's quarter panel, squealing as they ripped through the paint. 
The scarecrow, though swift and strong, was also very tall and ungainly, and we reversed directions more quickly than it could, giving us a couple of seconds worth of a lead. I gripped my blasting rod so hard that my knuckles turned white, and struggled to work out an evocation on the fly. I'm not much of an evocator. That's the whole reason I use tools like my staff and blasting rod to help me control and focus my energy. The very thought of spontaneously trying out a new evocation was enough to make sweat bead on my forehead, and I tried to remind myself that it wasn't a new evocation. It was just a very, very, very skewed application of an old one. I leaned out the broken window, blasting rod in hand, watching behind us until the scarecrow's steps carried it into the clump of empty plastic bottles in a shallow puddle. Then I gritted my teeth, pointed my blasting rod at the sky, and reached out for fire. Instead of drawing the power wholly from within myself, I reached out into the environment around me, into the oppressive summer air, the burning heat of the van's engine, from Mouse, from Rollins, from the blazing streetlights, and from the water I'd spread in front of the scarecrow. Fuego! I howled. Flame shot up into the Chicago sky like a geyser, and the explosion of sudden heat broke some windows in the nearest buildings. The van's engine stuttered in protest, and the temperature inside the van dropped dramatically. Lights flickered out on the street. The abrupt temperature changed, destroying their fragile filaments as my spell sucked some of the heat out of everything within a hundred yards and the expensive puddle of water instantly froze into a sheet of glittering ice. The scarecrow's leading foot hit the ice and slid out from under its body. Its two long limbs thrashed wildly, and then the scarecrow went down, awkward limbs flailing. Its speed and size now worked against it, throwing it down the concrete like a tumbleweed until it smacked hard into a municipal bus stop shelter. Go! 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 I screamed. Thomas gunned the engine, recovering his power, and shot down the street. He turned at the nearest corner, and when he did, the scarecrow had only begun to extricate its tangle of limbs from the impact. Thomas hardly slowed, took a couple more turns, and then found a ramp onto the freeway. I watched behind us. Nothing followed. I sagged down, breathing hard, and closed my eyes. Harry, Thomas demanded, his voice worried. Are you all right? I grunted. Even that much was an effort. It took me a minute to manage to say, Just tired. I recovered from that feat and added, Madrigal pushed me into that thing and bugged out. Thomas winced. Sorry I wasn't there sooner, he said. I grabbed Rollins. I figured you'd have told me to get him out anyway. I would have, I said. He looked up at me in the rearview mirror, his eyes pale and worried. You sure you're all right? We're all alive. That's what counts. Thomas said nothing more until we slid off the highway and he began to slow the van. I busied myself checking Rollins. The cop had kept going in the face of severe pain and even more severe weirdness. Damned heroic, really. But even heroes are human, and human bodies have limits you can't exceed. Everything had finally caught up to Rollins. His breathing was steady and his wounded foot had swollen up so badly that his own shoe held down the bleeding. But I don't think a nuclear war could have woken him. I ground my teeth at what I had to do next. 
I set my deformed left hand on the floor of the van at the angle Lashiel had shown me and let my weight fall suddenly onto it. There was an ugly pop, more pain, and then the agony subsided somewhat. It was a giddy feeling, and my hand looked human again, if bruised and swollen. So, I said after I had worked up the energy, it was you following me around town. I didn't want to be seen openly with you, he said. I figured the council might take it badly if they found out you'd taken a white court vampire on a warden ride-along. Probably, I said. I take it you followed them from the parking garage? No, actually, Thomas said. I tried, but I lost them. Mouse didn't. I followed him. How the hell did they keep him away from you when they grabbed you? They hit him with this van, I said. Thomas raised his eyebrows and glanced back at Mouse. Seriously? He shook his head. Mouse led me to you. I was trying to figure out how to get into that garage without getting a shot. Then you made your move. You stole my coat, I said. Borrowed, he corrected. They never talk about this kind of crap when they talk about brothers. You weren't wearing it, he pointed out. Hell, you think I'm going to walk into one of your patented Harry Dresden anarchy-gasms without all the protection I can get? I grunted. You look good tonight. I always look good, he said. You know what I mean, I told him quietly. Better, stronger, faster. Like the six million dollar man, Thomas said. Stop joking, Thomas, I told him in an even tone. You used a lot of energy tonight. You're feeding again. He drove, eyes guarded, his face blank. I chewed on my lip. You want to talk about it? He ignored me, which I took as a no. How long have you been active? I was sure he was stonewalling when he said in a very quiet voice, since last Halloween. I frowned. When we took on those necromancers. Yeah, he said. There's... Look, there's something I didn't tell you about that night. I tilted my head, watching his eyes in the rearview mirror. Remember, I said Murphy's bike broke down. I did. I nodded. It wasn't the bike, Thomas said. He took a deep breath. It was the wild hunt. They came across me while I was trying to catch up with you. Sort of filled up the rest of my evening. I arched my eyebrows. You didn't have to lie about something like that, man. I mean, everyone who won't join the hunt becomes its prey. So it's not your fault the hunt chased you around. I scratched at my chin. Stubble. I needed a shave. Hell, man. You should be damn proud. I doubt more than five or six people in history have ever escaped the hunt. He was quiet for a moment and then said, I didn't run from them, Harry. My shoulders twitched with sudden tension. I joined them, he said. Thomas, I began. He looked up at the mirror. I didn't want to die, man. And when push comes to shove, I'm a predator, a killer. Part of me wanted to go. Part of me had a good time. I don't like that part of me much, but it's still there. Hells. Bells, I said quietly. I don't remember very much of it, he said. He shrugged. I let you down that night. Let myself down that night. So I figured this time I'd try to help you out, once you told me you were on the job again. You've got a car now, too, I said quietly. Yeah. You're making money and feeding on people. 
Yeah. I frowned. I didn't know what to say to that. Thomas had tried to fit in. He tried to get himself an honest job. He tried it for most of two years. But it always ended badly because of who and what he was. I had begun to wonder if there was any place in Chicago that hadn't fired him. But he'd had this job, whatever it was, for a while now. There anything I need to know? I asked him. He shook his head, a tiny gesture. His reticence worried me. Though he'd been repeatedly humiliated, Thomas had never had any trouble talking, complaining, really, about the various jobs he'd tried to hold. Once or twice, he'd opened up to me about the difficulty of going without the kind of intense feeding he'd been used to with Justine. Yet now he was clamming up on me. An uncharitable sort of person would have gotten suspicious. They would have thought that Thomas must have been engaging in something, probably illegal and certainly immoral, to make his living. They would have dwelt on the idea that, as a kind of incubus, it would be a simple matter for him to seduce and control any wealthy woman he chose, providing sustenance and finances in a single package. Good thing I'm not one of those uncharitable guys. I sighed. If he wasn't going to talk, he wasn't going to talk. Time to change the subject. Glau, I said quietly. Mandrigal sidekick there. He said he was a Jan? Thomas nodded. Scion of a djinn and a mortal. He worked for Madrigal's father. Then my father arranged to have Madrigal's father go skydiving, naked. Glaus stuck with Madrigal after that. Was he dangerous? I asked. Thomas thought about it for a moment and then said, He was thorough. Details never slipped by. He could play a courtroom like some kind of maestro. He was never finished with something until it was dissected, labeled, documented, and locked away in storage somewhere. But he wasn't a threat in a fight. Not as such things go. He could kill you dead enough, but not much better than any number of things. Funny, then, I said. The scarecrow popped him first. Thomas glanced back at me, arching a brow. Think about it, I said. This thing was supposed to be a phobophage, right? Going after the biggest source of fear. Sure. Glau was barely conscious when it grabbed him, I said. It was probably me or Madrigal who was feeling the most tension, but it took out Glau, specifically. You think someone sent it for Glau? I think it's a reasonable conclusion. Thomas frowned. Why would anyone do that? To shut him up, I said. I think Madrigal was supposed to go down for these attacks, at least in front of the supernatural communities. Maybe Glau was in on it. Maybe Glau arranged for Madrigal to be here. Or maybe the Scarecrow went after Glau because he was wounded and separate from the rest of us. It might have been a coincidence. Possible, I allowed. But my gut says it wasn't. Glau was their cutout man. They killed him to cover their trail. Who do you think they is? Um, I rubbed at my face, hoping the stimulation might move some more blood around in my brain and knock loose some ideas. Not sure. My head hurts. I'm missing some details somewhere. It should be enough for me to piece this together, but damned if I can see it. I shook my head and felt quiet. Where to? Thomas asked. 
Hospital, I said. We'll drop Rollins off. Then what? Then I pick up the trail of those phages and see if I can find out who summoned them. I told him briefly about the events of the afternoon and evening. If we're lucky, all we'll find is some maniac's corpse with a surprised look on his face. What if we aren't lucky? he asked. Then it means the summoner is a hell of a lot better than I am to fight off three of those things. I rubbed at one eye. And we'll have to take him down before he hurts anyone else. The fun never ends, Thomas said. Right. Hospital. And circle the block around the hotel. The spell I diverted the phages with had the tracking element worked into it. Sunrise will unravel it, and we don't know how long it will take to follow the trail. I directed Thomas to the nearest hospital, and he carried the unconscious Rollins through the emergency room doors. He came back a minute later and told me, They're on the job. Let's go, then. Otherwise, someone will want to ask us questions about gunshot wounds. Thomas was way ahead of me, and the van headed back to the hotel. I got the spell ready. It wasn't a difficult working, under normal circumstances, but I felt as wrung out as a dirty dish rag. It took me three tries to get the spell up and running, but I managed it. Then I climbed into the passenger seat, where I could see evidence of the phages passing as a trail of curling, pale green vapor in the air. I gave Thomas directions. We followed the trail, and it led us toward Wrigley. Not a whole hell of a lot of industry was going on in my aching skull, but after a few minutes, something began to gnaw at me. I looked blearily around and found that the neighborhood looked familiar. We kept on the trail. The neighborhood got more familiar. The vapor grew brighter as we closed in. We turned the last street corner. My stomach twisted in a spasm of horrified nausea. The green vapor trail led to a two-story white house, a charming place somehow carrying off the look of suburbia despite being inside the third largest city in America. Green lawn despite the heat, white picket fence, children's toys and evidence. The vapor led up to the picket fence first. There were three separate large holes in the fence where some enormous force had burst the fence to splinters. Heavy footprints gouged the lawn. An imitation old-style wrought iron gaslight had been bent to parallel with the ground about four feet up. The door had been torn from its hinges and flung into the yard. A minivan parked in the driveway had been crushed as if by a dropped wrecking ball. I couldn't be sure, but I thought I saw blood on the doorway. The decorative mailbox three feet from me read, in cheerfully painted letters, The Carpenters. Oh, God. Oh, God, oh, God, I'd sent the phages after Molly. Chapter 30 I got out of the van, too shocked to see anything but the destruction. It made no sense, made no sense at all. How in the hell could this have happened? How could my spell have turned the phages and sent them here? I stood on the sidewalk outside the house with my mouth hanging open, the street lights were all out. Only the lights of the van showed the damage, and Thomas turned them off after only a moment. There was no disturbance on the street, no outcry, no police presence. Whatever had happened, something had taken steps to keep it from disturbing the neighbors. I don't know how long I stood there. I felt Mouse's presence at my side, then Thomas's on the other side of me. Harry, 
he said as if repeating himself. What is this place? It's Michael's house, I whispered. His family's home. Thomas flinched. He looked back and forth and said, Those things came here? I nodded. I felt unsteady. I felt so damn tired. Whatever happened here, it was over. There was nothing I could do at this point except see who had been hurt. And I did not want to do that. So I stood there, staring at the house, until Thomas finally said, I'll keep watch out here. Circle the house, see if there's anything to be seen. Okay, I whispered. I swallowed, and my stomach felt like I'd swallowed a pound of thumbtacks. I wanted nothing in the world so much as to run away. But instead, I dragged my tired ass over the damaged lawn and through the house's broken doorway. Mouse, walking on three legs, followed me. There were sprinkles of blood, already dried, on the inside of the doorway. I went on inside the house, through the entry hall, into the living room. Furniture lay strewn all over the place, discarded and broken and tumbled. The television lay on its side, warbling static on its screen. A low sound, all white noise and faint interference, filled the room. There was utter silence in the house otherwise. Hello? I called. No one answered. I went into the kitchen. There were school papers on the fridge, most of them written in exaggerated childish hands. There were crayon drawings up there, too. One of a smiling stick figure in a dress had a wavering line of letters underneath that read, I love you, Mama. Oh, God. The thumbtacks in my belly became razor blades. If I'd hurt them, I didn't know what I would do. Harry! Thomas called from outside. Harry! Come here! His voice was tense, excited. I went out the kitchen door to the backyard and found Thomas climbing down from a treehouse only a little nicer than my apartment, built up in the branches of the old oak tree behind the carpenter's house. He had a still form draped over his shoulder. I drew out my amulet and called Wizard Light as Thomas laid the oldest son, Daniel, out on the grass in the backyard. He was breathing, but looked pale. He was wearing flannel pajama pants and a white t-shirt soaked with blood. There was a cut on his arm, not too deep, but very messy. He had bruises on his face, on one arm, and the knuckles on both of his hands were torn and ragged. Michael's son had been throwing punches. It hadn't done him any good, but he'd fought. Coat, I said terse. He's cold. Thomas immediately took off my duster and draped it over the boy. I propped his feet up on my backpack. Stay here, I told him. I went in the house, fetched a glass of water, and brought it out. I knelt down and tried to wake the boy up to get him to drink a little. He coughed a little, then drank and blinked open his eyes. He couldn't focus them. Daniel, I said quietly. Daniel, it's Harry Dresden. D Dresden? He said. Yeah. Your dad's friend, Harry. Harry, he said. Then his eyes flew open wide, and he struggled to sit up. Molly! Easy, easy, I told him. You're hurt. We don't know how bad yet. Lie still. Can't, he mumbled. They took her. We were... Is mom okay? Are the little ones okay? I chewed on my lip. I don't know. Do you know where they are? 
He blinked several times, and then he said, Panic room. I frowned. What? Second floor. Safe room. Dad built it. Just in case. I traded a look with Thomas. Where is it? Daniel waved a vague hand. Mom had the little ones upstairs. Molly and me couldn't get to the stairs. They were there. We tried to lead them away. Who, Daniel? They who? The movie monsters. Reaper. Hammerhand. He shuddered. Scarecrow. I snarled a furious curse. Thomas, stay with him. Mouse, keep watch. I stood up and stalked into the house, crossed to the stairs, and went up them. The upstairs hallway had a bunch of bedrooms off it, with the oldest children's rooms being at the opposite end of the hall from the master bedroom, the younger children being progressively closer to Mom and Dad. I looked inside each room. They were all empty, though the two nearest the head of the stairs had been torn up pretty well. Broken toys and shattered child-sized furniture lay everywhere. If I hadn't been looking for it, I wouldn't have noticed the extra space between the linen closet and the master bedroom. I checked the closet in the master bedroom and turned up nothing. Then I opened the door to the linen closet and found the shelves in complete disarray, sheets and towels and blankets strewn on the floor. I hunkered down and held up my mother's amulet, peering closely, and then found a section of the back wall of the closet just slightly misaligned with the corner it met. I reached out and touched that part of the wall, closed my eyes, extending my senses through my fingertips. I felt power there. It wasn't a ward, or at least it was unlike any ward I had ever encountered. It was more of a quiet hum of constant power, and was similar to the power I'd felt stirring around Michael on several occasions. The power of faith. There was a form of magic protecting that panel. Lashiel, I murmured quietly. You getting this? She did not appear, but her voice rolled through my thoughts. Yes, my host. Angelic work. I exhaled. Real angels? Aye. Raphael, or one of his lieutenants from the feel of it. Dangerous. There was an uncertain pause. It is possible... You are touched by more darkness than my own, but it is meant to conceal the room beyond, not to strike out at an intruder. I took a deep breath and said, Okay. Then I reached out and rapped hard on the panel three times. I thought I heard a motion, weight shifting on the floorboard. I knocked again. Charity? I called. It's Harry Dresden! This time the motion was definite, the panel clicked, then rolled smoothly to one side, and a double-barreled shotgun slid out, aimed right at my chin. I swallowed and looked down the barrel. Charity's cold blue eyes faced me from the other end of the gun. You might not be the real Dresden, she said. Sure I am. Prove it, she said. Her tone was quiet, balanced, deadly. Charity, there's no time for this. You want me to show you my driver's license? Bleed, she said instead. Which was a good point. Most of the things who could play doppelganger did not have human plumbing or human blood. It wasn't an infallible test by any means, but it was as solid as anything a non-wizard could use for verification. 
So I pulled out my penknife and cut my already mangled left hand, just a little. I couldn't feel it in any case. I bled red and showed her. She stared at me for a long second, and then eased the hammers on the shotgun back down, set the weapon aside, and wriggled out of the space beyond the panel. I saw a candle lit back there. The rest of the carpenter children, sans Molly, were inside. Alicia was sitting up, awake, her eyes worried. The rest were sacked out. Molly, she said, once she'd gained her feet. Daniel. I found him hiding in the treehouse, I said. He's hurt. She nodded once. How badly? Bruised up pretty good. Groggy. But I don't think he's in immediate danger. Mouse and a friend of mine are with him. Charity nodded again, features calm and remote, eyes cold and calculating. She had a great, cool-headed act going, but it wasn't perfect. Her hands were trembling badly, fingers clenching and unclenching arrhythmically. And Molly? I haven't found her yet, I said quietly. Daniel might know what happened to her. Were they denarians? she asked. I shook my head. Definitely not. Is it possible that they may return? I shrugged. It isn't likely. But possible? Yes. She nodded once, and her voice had the quality of someone thinking aloud. Then, the next thing to do is to take the children to the church. We'll make sure Daniel is cared for. I'll try to send word to Michael, and then we'll find Molly. Charity, I said. Wait. Charity thrust the heel of her hand firmly into my chest and pushed my shoulders back against the opposite wall. Her voice was quiet and very precise. My children are vulnerable. I'm taking them to safety. Help me or stand aside. Then she turned from me and began bringing her children out. Alicia helped as much as she could, her studious features tired and worried but the littlest ones were sleepy to the point of hibernation and remained limp as dish rags. I pitched in, picking up little Harry and Hope, carrying one on each hip. Charity's expression flashed briefly with both worry and thanks, and I saw her control slip. Tears formed in her eyes. She closed them again, jaw clenched, and when she looked up, she had regained her composure. Thank you, she said. Let's move, I replied, and we did. Tough lady. Very tough. We'd had our differences, but I had to respect the proud core of her. She was the kind of mother you read about in the paper, the kind who lifts a car off of one of her kids. It was entirely possible that I'd just killed her oldest daughter. If Charity knew that, if she knew that I'd put her children in danger, she'd murder me. If Molly had been hurt because of me, I'd help. St. Mary of the Angels is more than just a church. It's a monument. It's huge. Its dome rising to seventeen stories and covered in every kind of accessory you could name, including angelic statues spread over the roof and ledges. You could get a lot of people arguing over exactly what it's a monument to, I suppose but one cannot see the church without being impressed by its size, by its artistry, by its beauty. In a city of architectural mastery, St. Mary of the Angels need bow its head to no one. That said, the back of the place, the delivery doors, looked quite modestly functional. 
We went there, Charity driving her family's minivan, Thomas, me, and Mouse in Madrigal's battered rental van. Mouse and I got out. Thomas didn't. I frowned at him. I'm going to find some place to park this, he said, just in case Madrigal decides to report it is stolen or something. Think you'll make trouble for us? I asked. Not face to face, Thomas said, his voice confident. He's more jackal than wolf. Look on the bright side, I said. Maybe the scarecrow turned around and got him. Thomas sighed. Keep dreaming. He's a greasy little rat, but he survives. He looked up at the church and then said, I'll keep an eye on things from out here. Come on out when you're done. I got it. Thomas didn't want to enter holy ground. As a vampire of the white court, he was as close to human as vampires got, and as far as I knew, holy objects had never inconvenienced him. So this wasn't about supernatural allergies. It was about his perceptions. Thomas didn't want to go into the church because he wasn't optimistic that the Almighty and his institutions would smile on him. Like me, he favored maintaining a low profile with regards to matters temporal. And if he had gone back to older patterns, doing what came naturally to his predator's nature, it might incline him to stay off the theological radar. Worse, entering such a place as the church might force him to face his choices, to question them, to be confronted with the fact that the road he'd chosen kept getting darker and further from the light. I knew how he felt. I hadn't been in a church since I'd smacked my hand down on Lashiel's ancient silver coin. Hell, I had a freaking fallen angel in my head, or at least a facsimile of one. If that wasn't a squirt of lemon juice in God's eye, I didn't know what was. But I had a job to do. Be careful, I told him quietly. Call Murphy. Tell her what's up. You'd better get some rest soon, Harry, he replied. You don't look good. I never look good, I said. I offered him my fist. He wrapped my knuckles gently with his own. I nodded and walked over to knock on the delivery doors while he drove off in Madrigal's van. I'd taken my duster back, once Daniel had a blanket on him. Screw the heat, I wanted the protection. Its familiar weight on my shoulders and motion against my legs were reassuring. Fort Hill answered my knock, fully dressed, the white of his clerical collar easily seen in the night. His bright blue eyes looked around the parking lot once, and he hurried toward the van without a word being exchanged. I followed him. Fort Hill moved briskly, and we unloaded the van, Alicia shepherding the mobile kids indoors while he and Charity carried Daniel in between them. I followed with the two little wet dish rags, trying to keep my tired muscles from shaking too obviously. Fort Hill led us to the storage room that sometimes doubled as refugee housing. There were half a dozen folded cots against one wall, and another one already opened, set out, and occupied by a lump under a blanket. Fort Hill and Charity got the wounded Daniel onto a cot first, and then opened the rest of them. We deposited tired children on them. What happened? Fort Hill asked, his voice quiet and calm. I didn't want to hear Charity talk about it. Got a cramp, I told him. Need to walk it off. Come find me when Daniel gets coherent. Very well, Charity said. Fort Hill looked back and forth between us, frowning. Mouse rose with a grunt of effort to limp after me. No, boy. Stay and keep an eye on the kids. Mouse settled down again, 
almost gratefully. I beat it and started walking. It didn't matter where. There were too many things flying around in my head. I just walked. Motion wasn't a cure, but I was tired enough that it kept the thoughts, the emotions, from drowning me. I walked down hallways and through empty rooms. I wound up in the chapel proper. I've been in smaller stadiums. Gleaming hardwood floors shine over the whole of the chapel. Wooden pews stand in ranks, row upon row upon row, and the altar and nave are gorgeously decorated. It seats more than a thousand people, including the balcony at the rear of the chapel, and every Sunday they still have to run eight masses in four different languages to fit everyone in. More than size and artistry, though, there is something else about the place that makes it more than simply a building. There's a sense of quiet power there, deep and warm and reassuring. There's peace. I stood for a moment in the vast and empty room and closed my eyes. Right then, I needed all the peace I could get. I drifted through the room, idly admiring it, and wound up in the balcony, all the way at the top, in a dark corner. I leaned my head back against a wall. Lashiel's voice came to me very quietly and sounded odd, sad. It is beautiful here. I didn't bother to agree. I didn't tell her to get lost. I leaned my head back against the rear wall and closed my eyes. I woke up when Fort Hill's steps drew near. I kept my eyes closed, half hoping that if I didn't seem to waken, he would go away. Instead, he settled a couple of feet down the pew from me and remained patiently quiet. The act wasn't working. I opened my eyes and looked at him. What happened? he asked quietly. I pressed my lips together and looked away. It's all right, Forthill said quietly. If you wish to tell me, I'll speak of it to no one. Maybe I don't want to talk to you, I said. Of course, he said, nodding. But my offer stands, should you wish to talk. Sometimes the only way to carry a heavy burden is to share it with another. It is your choice to make. Choices. Sometimes I thought it would be nice not to make any choices. If I never had one, I could never screw it up. There are things I don't care to share with a priest, I told him, but I was mostly thinking out loud. He nodded. He took off his collar and set it aside. He settled back into the pew, reached into his jacket, and drew out a slender silver flask. He opened it, took a sip, and offered it to me. Then share it with your bartender. That drew a faint, snorting laugh from me. I shook my head, took the flask, and sipped. An excellent smooth scotch. I sipped again, and I told him what happened at the convention and how it had spilled over onto the carpenter household. He listened. We passed the flask back and forth. I finished by saying, I sent those things right to her door. I never meant it to happen. Of course not, he said. It doesn't make me feel any better about it. Nor should it, he said. But you must know that you are a man of power. How so? Power, he said, waving a hand in an all-encompassing gesture. All power is the same. Magic, physical strength, economic strength, political strength, it all serves a single purpose. 
It gives its possessor a broader spectrum of choices. It creates alternative courses of action. I guess, I said. So? So, he said, you have more choices, which means that you have much improved odds of making mistakes. You're only human. Once in a while, you're going to screw the pooch. I don't mind that, I said, when I'm the only one who pays for it. But that isn't in your control, he said. You cannot see all outcomes. You couldn't have known that those creatures would go to the carpenter house. I ground my teeth. So? Daniel's still hurt. Molly could be dead. But their condition was not yours to ordain, Forthill said. All power has its limits. Then what's the point? I snarled, suddenly furious. My voice bounced around the chapel in rasping echoes. What good is it to have power enough to kill my friend's family, but not power enough to protect them? What the hell do you expect from me? I've got to make these stupid choices. What the hell am I supposed to do with them? Sometimes, he replied, his tone serious, you just have to have faith. I laughed, and it came out loud and bitter, mocking echoes of it drifted through the vast chamber. Faith, I said, faith in what? That things will unfold as they are meant to, Forthill said, that even in the face of an immediate ugliness, the greater picture will resolve into something all the more beautiful. Show me, I spat. Show me something beautiful about this. Show me the silver fucking lining. He pursed his lips and mused for a moment. Then he said, There's a quote from the founder of my order. There is something holy, something divine, hidden in the most ordinary situations. And it is up to each one of you to discover it. What's that supposed to mean? I asked. That the good that will come is not always obvious, nor easy to see, nor in the place we would expect to find it, nor what we personally desire. You should consider that the good being created by the events this night may have nothing to do with the defeat of supernatural evils or endangered lives. It may be something very quiet, very ordinary. I frowned at him. Like what? He finished off the little flask and rose. He put it away and put his collar back on. I'm afraid I'm not the one you should ask. He put a hand on my shoulder and nodded toward the altar. But I will say this. I've been on this earth a fair while, and one way or another, this too shall pass. I have seen worse things reverse themselves. There is yet hope for Molly, Harry. We must strive to do our utmost and to act with wisdom and compassion. But we must also have faith that the things beyond our control are not beyond his. I sat quietly for a minute, and I said, You almost make me believe. He arched an eyebrow. But? I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if it's possible for me. The corners of his eyes wrinkled. Then perhaps you should try to have faith that you might one day have faith. His fingers squeezed and then released my shoulder. He turned to go. Padre, I said. He paused. You won't tell Charity. He turned his head and I could see sadness in his profile. No, 
You aren't the only one too afraid to believe. Sudden footsteps clattered into the chapel, and Alicia hurried in, accompanied by Mouse. The big gray dog sat down and stared up at the balcony. Alicia, panting, looked up. Father? Here, Forthill said. Come quick, she said. Mama said to tell you Daniel's awake. Chapter 31 We listened to Daniel's recounting of the attack. It was simple enough. He'd heard Molly moving around downstairs and had come down to talk to his sister. There had been a knock at the door. Molly had gone to answer it. There had been an exchange of words, and then Molly had screamed and slammed the door. She came running into the living room, Daniel said, and they broke down the door behind her and came in. He shivered. They were going upstairs, and Molly said we had to distract them, so I grabbed the poker from the fireplace and just sort of jumped them. He shook his head. I thought they were just costumes, you know, like really stupid burglars or something. But the Reaper grabbed me, and he was going to, you know, cut me with that carved knife. He gestured vaguely at his wounded arm. Molly hit him, and he dropped me. With what? I asked him. He shook his head. His thin, awkward, adolescent features were hollow with pain weariness, and a kind of lingering disbelief. His words were all slightly stiff, wooden, as if reporting events in an unappealing motion picture rather than actual experiences. I couldn't see. I think she must have had a bat or something. He dropped me. Then what? I asked him. He swallowed. I fell and bumped my head on the floor, and they grabbed her. The Reaper and the scarecrow, and they carried her out the door. She was screaming. He bit his lip. I tried to stop them, but Hammerhand chased me, so I ran out the back and up into the treehouse, because I figured, you know, he doesn't have any hands, just hammers, so how's he going to climb up after me? He looked to Charity and said, shame in his voice, I'm sorry, Mom. I wanted to stop them. They were just too big. Tears welled up in his eyes, and his thin chest heaved. Charity caught him in a fierce hug, squeezing him hard and whispering to him. Daniel broke down, sobbing. I got up and walked to the far side of the room. Fort Hill joined me there. These creatures, I told him quietly, inflict more than simple physical damage. They rip into the psyches of those they attack. This happened to Daniel? Forthill asked. I'd have to take a closer look to be certain, but it's probable. Kid's gonna have it tough for a while, I said. It's like emotional trauma. Someone dying, that kind of thing. It tears people up in the same way. They don't get over it fast. I've seen it too, Forthill said. I haven't brought this up yet, but I thought you should know that Nelson came to me earlier this evening. I nodded at the cot that had been occupied when we came in. That him? Yes. How'd he strike you? I asked. Fort Hill pursed his lips. If I didn't know you sent him, I would have thought he was having a bad reaction to drugs. He was almost incoherent, very agitated, terrified in point of fact, though he would not or could not explain why. 
I managed to get him calmed down, and he all but fainted. I frowned, running the fingers of my right hand back through my hair. Did you have the sense that anyone was following him? Not at all, though I might have missed something. He essayed a tired smile. It's late, and I'm not as spry as I used to be after ten o'clock or so. Thank you for helping him, I said. Of course. Who is he? Molly's boyfriend, I said. I glanced across the room at the mother holding her son. Maybe Charity doesn't need to know that part either. He blinked and then sighed. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, I said. May I ask you a question, he asked. Sure. These creatures, these phages, if they are what you say, beings of the spirit world, then how did they manage to cross the house's threshold? Traditional way, I said. They got an invitation. From whom? Probably Molly, I said. He frowned. I have difficulty believing that she would do such a thing. I felt my mouth tighten. She probably didn't know they were monsters. They're shapeshifters. They probably appeared to her as someone she knew and would invite in. Forthill said, Ah, I see. Someone such as you, perhaps. Perhaps, I said quietly. Makes it the second time someone has used my face to get a shot at Michael's family. Forthill said nothing for a moment. Then he said, It occurs to me that these creatures killed without compunction in your previous encounters. Why would they carry Molly away instead of simply murdering her? I don't know yet, I said. I don't know how my spell managed to bring them to Molly. I don't know precisely what these things are or where they hail from, which means I can't figure out why they've been showing up or where they might have taken the girl. I waved a hand in a frustrated gesture. It's driving me insane. I've got tons of facts, and none of them are lining up. You're tired, Forthill said. Perhaps some rest. I shook my head. No, Padre. The things that took her won't rest. The longer she's in their hands, the less likely it is we'll ever see her again. I rubbed at my eyes. I need to rethink it. Forthill nodded at me and rose. On the other side of the room, Charity was covering her exhausted son with a blanket. Even Alicia had surrendered to fatigue, and now only the adults were awake. I'll leave you to it, then. Have you eaten recently? Sometime in the Mesozoic era, I said. Sandwich? My stomach made a gurgling noise. Only if you insist. I'll see to it, Forthill said. Excuse me. He went over to Charity and took her arm leading her out as he spoke quietly to her. Now that her children had been cared for, she looked like she might come apart at the seams. They left the room together, leaving me in the dimness with Mouse and a lot of sleeping kids. I thought. I thought some more. I picked up all the facts I knew, turning them every which way, trying to figure out something, anything, that would let me put a stop to this insanity. The phages. The answer was in the phages. Once I knew their identity, I could begin to work out who might be using them and what I might do to learn more about them. There had to be a commonality to them, somewhere, something that linked them together, some fact that could provide me a context in which to judge their motivations and intentions. But what the hell could they have in common other than being monsters who fed on fear? 
They'd shown up randomly in a bathroom, a kitchen, a parking lot, a conference room. The victims had been disparate, seemingly random. They had all appeared as figures from horror movies, but that fact seemed fairly unremarkable, relatively speaking. Try as I might, I could find nothing to join them together to let me recognize them. Frustrated, I rose and went over to Daniel's cot. I called up my sight. It took me longer than normal. I braced myself and regarded the boy. I'd been right. He'd taken a psychic flogging. The phage had been worrying at his mind, his spirit, even as it had threatened his flesh. I could see the wounds as long, bleeding tears in his flesh. Poor little guy. It would haunt him. I hoped he would be able to get a little rest before the nightmares woke him up. I stared at him for a good while, making sure his suffering was burned indelibly into my head. I wanted to remember for the rest of my life what the consequences of my screw-ups might be. I heard a sound to the side and glanced up without thinking, turning my sight upon the source of the sound, a restlessly stirring Nelson. If little Daniel had been the recipient of a savage beating, Nelson's spirit had been in the hands of hell itself. His entire upper body was disfigured under my sight, covered in hideous, festering boils and raw, bleeding burns. The damage was worst around his head and faded gradually as it descended his torso. And each of his temples bore tiny, neat holes, sharp and cauterized as if by a laser scalpel. Just like Rosie. Chains of logic cascaded through my brain. My head swam. I shoved the sight away from me, and my ass fell straight down to the floor. I knew. I knew why my spell had sent the phages after the carpenters. I knew why Molly had been taken. I could make a good guess at where. I knew what the phages all had in common. I knew who had sent them. The realization terrified me with a fear so cold and sharp that it literally paralyzed me. I could barely clap my hand over my mouth to keep from making whimpering sounds. It took me a while to force myself to calm down. By the time I did, Fort Hill had returned bearing sandwiches. He settled down on a cot, clearly exhausted, and went to sleep. I ate my sandwiches. Then I went looking for Charity. I found her in the chapel, sitting up high in the balcony. She stared down at the altar and did not react when I came up the steps to her and settled down on the bench beside her. I sat with her in silence for a minute. Charity, I whispered, I need to ask you something. She sat in stony silence. Her chin moved a fraction of a degree up and down. How long? I murmured. How long since what? She asked. I took a deep breath. How long has it been since you've used your magic? Chapter 32 I couldn't have gotten more of a reaction if I'd shot her. Charity's face turned sheet white the blood draining from it. She froze in place, grasping the edge of the wooden pew in front of her with both hands. 
Her knuckles turned white, and the wood creaked. She gnashed her teeth and bowed her head. I didn't push. I waited. She opened her eyes again, and she wasn't hard to read. Her thoughts and emotions were clear on her face. Panic, desperation, self-loathing. Her eyes flicked from one possibility to another. She considered denying it. She considered lying to me. She considered simply walking away. Charity, I told her. Tell me the truth. Her breathing quickened. I saw her desperation growing. I reached out with one hand and turned her face toward me. Your daughter needs you. If we don't help her, she's going to die. Charity flinched and pulled away from me. Her shoulders shook with a silent sob. She fought to control her breathing, her voice, and whispered, A lifetime. I felt some tension ease in me. Her reaction confirmed that I was on the right track. How did you know? she asked. Just putting lots of little things together, I said. Please, Charity, tell me. Her voice was rough, half-strangled, as though the breath that carried her words had been tainted with something rotten. I had some talent. It showed just before my sixteenth birthday. You know how awkward that kind of thing can be? Yeah, I said. How'd your family take it? Her mouth twisted. My parents were wealthy, respectable. When they had time to notice me, they expected me to be normal, respectable. They found it easier to believe that I was a drug addict, emotionally unbalanced. I winced. There were a lot of situations that could meet someone with a burgeoning magical talent. Charities was one of the worst. They sent me away to schools, she said and to hospitals disguised as schools. She waved a hand. I eventually left them, just left them. I struck out on my own. And fell in with a bad crowd, I said quietly. She gave me a bitter smile. You've heard this story before. It isn't uncommon, I said quietly. Who was it? A uh, coven of sorts, I suppose, she said. More of a cult. There was a young man leading it, Gregor. He had power. He and the others, all young people, mixed in religion and mysticism and philosophy and, well, you've probably seen such things before. I nodded. I had. A charismatic leader, dedicated followers, a collection of strays and homeless runaways. It rarely developed into something positive. I wasn't strongly gifted, she said. Not like you. But I learned about some of what happens out there. About the White Council. The bitter smile returned. Everyone was terrified of them. A warden visited us once. He delivered a warning to Gregor. He'd been toying about with some kind of summoning spells, and the wardens got wind of it. They interviewed each of us, evaluated us, told us the laws of magic, and told us never to break them if we wished to live. I nodded and listened. She spoke more quickly now, the words coming out in a growing rush. They'd been pent up for a long time. Gregor resented it. He grew distant. He began practicing magic that walked the crumbling edges of the council's laws. He had us all doing it. Her eyes grew cold. 
The others began disappearing, one by one. No one knew where they had gone. But I saw what was happening. I saw Gregor growing in power. He was trading them, I said. She nodded once. He saw my face when I realized it. I was the next one to go. He came to take me away, and I fought him, tried to kill him, wanted to kill him, but he beat me. I remember only parts of it, being chained to an iron post. The dragon, I said. She nodded. Some of the bitterness faded from her smile. And Michael came. And he destroyed the monster and saved me. She looked up at me. Tears filled her eyes and streaked down her cheeks, but she did not blink. I swore to myself that I would leave that behind me, the magic, the power. I had urges, she swallowed, to do things only, only a monster would do. When Cereothrax died, Gregor went mad, utterly mad. But I wanted to turn my power against him anyway. I couldn't think of anything else. Hard to do, I said quietly. You were a kid, no real training, exposed to some nasty uses of power. Yes, she said. Without Michael, I would never have been able to leave it behind me. He never knew. He still doesn't know. He remained near me in my life, making sure that I was all right, and he was such a good soul. When he smiled at me, it was like all the light in the world was shining out at me. I wanted to be worthy of that smile. My husband saved my life, Mr. Dresden, and not only from the dragon. He saved me from myself. She shook her head. I never touched my power again after the night I met Michael. We married soon after, and in time, the power withered, and good riddance to it. So, when Molly's talent began to manifest, I said quietly, you tried to get her to abandon it as well. I was well aware of how dangerous it could be, she said, how innocent it could seem. She shook her head. I did not want her exposed to the things that had nearly destroyed my life. But she did it anyway, I guessed. That's what really came between the two of you. That's why she ran away from home. Charity's voice turned raw. Yes, I couldn't get through to her how dangerous it was, what she might be sacrificing. She made no effort to stem or hide her tears. And you were there, a hero who fought beside her father, used his power to help people. She let out a tired laugh. For the love of God, you saved my life. We named our child for you. Once she realized she had the talent, nothing could keep her from it. Christ. No wonder Charity hadn't much liked me. Not only was I dragging her husband off to who knew where to fight who knew what, I was also setting an example to Molly of everything Charity wanted her to avoid. I didn't know, I told her. She shook her head. Then she said, I have been honest with you. No one else knows what you do now. Not Michael, not my daughter, no one. She drew a Kleenex from her pocket and wiped at her eyes. What has happened to my daughter? I exhaled. 
What I've got right now is still mostly guesswork, I said. But my gut tells me it all fits together. I understand, she said. I nodded and told Charity about the attacks at the convention and about how Molly had gotten me involved. I examined the victims of the first two attacks, I said quietly. One of them, a girl named Rosie, showed evidence of a kind of a psychic trauma. At the time, I attributed it to the phages attack on her. Charity frowned. It wasn't? I shook my head. I found an identical trauma on Nelson. I took a deep breath and said, Molly is the link between them. They're both her friends. I think she was the one who hurt them. I think she used magic to invade their minds. Charity stared at me, her expression sickened. What? No. She shook her head. No, Molly wouldn't. Her face grew even more pale. Oh, God. She's broken one of the Council's laws. She shook her head more violently. No, no, no. She would not do such a thing. I grimaced and said, I think I know what she did and why she did it. Tell me. I took a deep breath. Rosie is pregnant, and she showed physical evidence of drug addiction, but none of the psychological evidence of withdrawal. I think Molly took steps when she found out her friend was pregnant to force her away from the drugs. I think she did it to protect the baby. And then I think she did the same thing to Nelson. But something went wrong. I think what she did to him broke something. I shook my head. He got paranoid, erratic. Charity stared down at the altar below, shaking her head. Is it the council, then, that took her? No, I said. No. What she did to Rosie and Nelson left a kind of mark on her, a stain. I think she forced Rosie and Nelson to feel fear whenever they came near their drugs. Fear is a powerful motivator, and it's easy to exploit. She wanted them to be afraid of the drugs. She had good intentions, but she wanted her friends to be frightened. I don't understand. Whoever called up these phages, I said, needed a way to guide them from the never-never to the physical world. They needed a beacon, someone who would resonate with a sympathetic vibe, someone who, like the phages, wanted to make people feel fear. And they used my molly, Charity whispered. Then she stared at me for a moment. You did it, she said quietly. You tried to turn the phages back upon their summoner. You sent them after my daughter. I didn't know, I told her. My God, Charity, I swear to you that I didn't know. People were dead, and I didn't want anyone else to be hurt. The wooden pew creaked even more sharply in her grip. Who did this thing, she said, and her voice was deadly quiet. Who is responsible for the harm to my children? Who is the one who called the things that invaded my home? I don't think anyone called them, I told her quietly. I think they were sent. She looked up at me and her eyes narrowed. Sent? I nodded. I hadn't considered that possibility until I realized what all of the attacks had in common. Mirrors. Mirrors? Charity asked. I don't understand. 
That was the common element, I said. Mirrors. The bathroom. Rosie's makeup mirror in the conference room. Plenty of reflective steel surfaces in a commercial kitchen. And Madrigal's rental van windshield was reflecting images very clearly. She shook her head. I still don't understand. There are plenty of things that can use mirrors as windows or doorways from the spirit world, I said. But there's only one thing that feeds on fear and uses mirrors as pathways back and forth from the never-never. It's called a fetch. Fetch. Charity tilted her head, her eyes vague, as though searching through old memories. I've heard of them. They're... aren't they creatures of fairy? Yeah, I said quietly. Specifically, they're creatures of deepest, darkest winter, I swallowed. Even more specifically, they're Queen Mab's elite spies and assassins, shapeshifters with a lot of power. Mab, she whispered. The Mab? I nodded slowly. And they've taken my daughter, she said, carried her away to fairy. I nodded again. She'll be a rich resource for them, a magically talented young mortal, compatible energy, not enough experience to defend herself. They can feed on her and her magic for hours, maybe days. That's why they didn't just kill her and have done. Charity swallowed. What can we do? I'm not sure, I said. It would be nice to have your husband along, though. She bit her lip and sent what might have been a hateful look down at the altar. He's out of reach. Messages have been left, but we're on our own, I said. We must do something, she said. Yeah, I agreed. The problem is that we don't know where to do it. I thought you just said that they had taken her back to fairy. Yeah, I said. But just because I tell you Ayers Rock is in Australia doesn't mean you're going to be able to find the damn thing. Australia's big. And Ferry makes it look like Rhode Island. Charity clenched her jaw. There must be something. I'm working on it, I said. What will... She paused and cleared her throat. How long does she have? Hard to say, I told her. Time can go by at different rates between here and there. A day here, but an hour there. Or vice versa. She stared steadily at me. I looked away and said... Not long. It depends on how long she holds out. They'll get all the fear out of her that they can, and then... I shook my head. A day, at most. She shook her head. No, she said quietly. I will not let that happen. There must be a way to take her back. I can get to Ferry, I said. But you've got to understand something. We're talking about opening a path into deep winter... If I'm strong enough to open the way, and if I'm strong enough to hold it open while simultaneously running a rescue operation against at least one ancient fetch who ate my magic like candy earlier tonight, we're still talking about defying the will of Queen Mab. If she's there, there's not a damn thing I can do. I don't have enough power to challenge her in the heart of her domain. The whole damn White Council doesn't have enough power. On top of that, I'd have to know precisely where to cross over into Ferry, because I'd have only minutes to grab her and get out, and I have no idea where she is. What are you saying? She asked quietly. That I can't do it, I told her. It's suicide. Charity's back stiffened. 
So you're willing to leave her there? No, I said. But it means that I'm going to have to find help wherever I can get it. Maybe from people and things that you won't much like. I shook my head. And it's possible I'll get myself killed before I can even make the attempt. And even if I get her out, there could be a price. I'll pay it, she said. Her voice was flat, strong, certain. For Molly, I'll pay it. I nodded. I didn't say the next thought out loud. That even if we did get the girl back, there might not be much left of her mind. And she'd broken one of the laws of magic. She could wind up on the floor of some lonely warehouse, a black bag over her head, until Morgan's sword took it off her shoulders. Or maybe worse, she could already have been twisted by the power she'd used. Even if I could find Molly and bring her home, it might already be too late to save her. But I could burn that bridge when I came to it. First I had to find her. The only way to do that was to learn where the fetches had carried her through to the never-never. Geography in the never-never isn't like geography in the normal world. The never-never touches our world only at certain points of sympathetic energy. A portion of the never-never that touched an empty and abandoned warehouse might not be anywhere near the area of the spirit world that touched the full and busy child care center across the physical street from the warehouse. To make it worse, the connections between the mortal world and the never-never changed slowly over time as the world changed. There could be a thousand places in Chicago where the fetches might have dragged Molly back to their lair. I had to find the correct one. And I had to do it before dawn, before the rising sun scattered and dispersed the residual traces of her presence that would be my only trail. I had about two hours, tops, to get my aching body back to my apartment to bathe and prepare for a spell that would have been dangerous had I been rested and entirely whole. Tired, hurting, pressured, and worried as I was, I would probably kill myself on Little Chicago's trial run. But my only other option was walk away and leave the girl in the hands of creatures that made nightmares afraid of the dark. I'll need something of hers, I said, rising. Hair or fingernail clippings would be best. Charity said, I have a lock of her hair in her baby book. Perfect, I said. I'll pick it up from your place. Where's the book? She rose. I'll show you. I hesitated. I don't know if that's wise. She's my daughter, Mr. Dresden, Charity said. I'm coming with you. I was too tired to argue. So I nodded and started down out of the balcony. My ankle twinged, and I wobbled and almost fell. Charity caught me. Chapter 33 This is Thomas, I told Charity, waving a hand at my brother, who had fallen into step beside me as I left the church. He's more dangerous than he looks. I have a black belt, Thomas explained. Charity arched an eyebrow, looked at Thomas for about a second, and said, You're the white court vampire who took my husband to that strip bar. Thomas gave Charity a toothy smile and said, Hey, it's nice to be remembered, and to work with someone who has a clue. He hooked a thumb at me and added, sotto voce, for a change. Charity's regard didn't change. It wasn't icy, nor friendly, nor touched by emotion. It was simply a remote, steady gaze, the kind one reserves for large dogs who pass nearby. 
cautious observation, unexcited and deliberate. I appreciate that you have fought beside my husband before, but I also want you to understand that what you are gives me reason to regard you with suspicion. Please do nothing to deepen that sentiment. I do not remain passive to threats. Thomas pursed his lips. I half expected anger to touch his gaze, but it didn't. He simply nodded and said, Understood, ma'am. Good, she said, and we reached her van. You ride in the rearmost seat. I started to protest, but Thomas put his hand on my shoulder and shook his head. Her ride, her rules, he murmured to me in passing. I can respect that, so can you. So we all got in and headed for the carpenter's house. How's Mouse? Thomas asked. Legs hurt, I said. Took one hell of a shot to do it, he noted. That's why I left him back there, I said. Could be he's pushing his luck. Besides, he can help Fort Hill keep an eye on the kids. Uh-huh, Thomas said. Am I the only one who was starting to think that maybe Mouse is something special? Always thought that, I said. I wonder if he's an actual breed. Charity glanced over her shoulder and said, He looks something like a Caucasian. Impossible, I said. He has rhythm, and he can dance. Charity shook her head and said, It's a dog bred by the Soviet Union in the Caucasus Mountains for use in secured military installations. It's one of the only breeds that grows so large, but they tend to be a great deal more aggressive than your dog. Oh, he's aggressive enough for anybody when he needs to be, I said. Thomas engaged Charity in a polite conversation about dogs and breeds, and I leaned my head against the window and promptly fell asleep. I woke up briefly when the van stopped. Charity and Thomas spoke, and I dozed as they loaded some things into the van. I didn't wake up again until Thomas touched my shoulder and said, We're at your apartment, Harry. Yeah, I mumbled. Okay. I blinked a couple of times and hopped out of the van. Thomas, I said, get in touch with Murphy for me and tell her I need her at my place, now. And here. I fumbled in my duster's pockets and found a white napkin and a marker. I wrote another number. Call this number. Tell them that I'm calling in my personal marker. Thomas took the paper and arched a brow. Can't you be any more specific? I don't have to be, I said. They'll know why I want them. This will just tell them that it's time for them to get together with me. Why me? Thomas asked. Because I don't have time, I said. So unless you want to play with dangerous magic divinations, call the damn number and stop making me waste time explaining myself. Heil Harry, Thomas said, his tone a bit sullen, but I knew he'd do it. Hair? I asked Charity. She passed me an unmarked white envelope, her expression a mask. Thank you. I took it and headed for my apartment, the two of them following after me. I'll be working downstairs. The two of you should stay in the living room. Please be as quiet as you can and don't walk around too much. Why? Charity asked. I shook my head tiredly and waved a hand. No, no questions right now. I'll need everything I've got to find where they took Molly. And I'm already rushing this thing. Let me concentrate. I'll explain it later. If I survive it, I thought. I felt Charity's eyes on me and I glanced back at her. She gave her head a brief, stiff nod. I took down the wards, and we went inside. Mister came over and rammed his shoulder against my legs, then wound his way around between Thomas's legs, accepting a few token pats from my half-brother. 
Then he surprised me by giving Charity the same treatment. I shook my head. Cats. No accounting for taste. Charity looked around my apartment, frowning, and said, It's very well kept up. I had expected more debris. He cheats, Thomas said, and headed for the refrigerator. I ignored them. There wasn't time for the full ritual cleansing and meditation, but my day had exposed me to all kinds of stains, external and otherwise, and I considered the shower to be the most indispensable portion of the preparation. So I went into my room, stripped, lit a candle, and got into the shower. Cool water sluiced over me. I scrubbed my skin until it was pink and washed my hair until my scalp got sore. The whole while, I sought out a quiet place in my mind, somewhere sheltered from pain and guilt, from fear and anger. I pushed out every sensation but for the bathing, and without conscious effort, my motions took on the steady rhythm of ritual, something commonplace transformed into an act of art and meditation, like a Japanese tea ceremony. I longed for my bed. I longed for sleep, warmth, laughter. I pinned down those longings one at a time and crucified them, suspending them until such time as my world was a place that could afford such desires. One last emotion was too big for me, though. Try though I might, I could not keep fear from finding a way to slither into my thoughts. Little Chicago's maiden run was an enormous unknown quantity. If I'd done it all right, I would have myself one hell of a tool for keeping track of things in my town. If I'd made even a tiny mistake, Molly was dead, or worse than dead, and I'd get to find out what the light at the end of the long tunnel really was. I couldn't escape the fear. It was built into the situation. So instead, I tried to make my peace with it. Fear properly handled could be turned into something useful. So I made a small, neat place for its use in my head, a kind of psychic litter box, and hoped that the fear wouldn't start jumping around at the worst possible moment. I got out of the shower, dried, and slipped into my white robe again. I kept my thoughts focused, picked up my backpack and the white envelope, and went down to the basement lab. I shut the door behind me. If little Chicago went Nova, preventative spells I'd laid to keep energies from escaping the lab should mitigate the damage significantly. It wasn't a perfect plan by any means, but I'm only human. Which was a disturbing thought as I stared at the model on the table. Even a tiny mistake. Only human. I set the envelope at the edge of the table, my backpack on a shelf, and went around the basement lighting candles with a match. A spell would have been faster and neater, but I wanted to save every drop of power for managing the divination. So I made lighting each candle a ritual of its own, focusing on my movements, on precision, on nothing but the immediate interplay of heat and cold, light and darkness, fire and shadow. I lit the last candle and turned to the model city. The building shone silver in the candlelight, and the air quivered with the power I'd built into the model. Some tiny voice of common sense in my head told me that this was a horribly bad idea. 
It told me that I was making decisions because I was in pain and exhausted, and that it would be far wiser to get some sleep and attempt a spell when I stood a reasonable chance of pulling it off. I crucified that little voice, too. There was no room for doubts. Then I turned to the table and to the elongated circle of silver I'd built into its surface. Lashiel appeared between me and the table in her usual white tunic, her red hair pulled back into a tight braid. She held up both hands and said quietly, I cannot permit you to do this. You, I said in a quiet, distant voice, are almost as annoying as a sudden phone call. This is pointless, she said. My host, I beg you to reconsider. I don't have time for you, I said. I have a job to do. A job, she asked. Evading your responsibilities, you mean? I tilted my head slightly. In my current mental state, the emotions I felt seemed infinitely far away and all but inconsequential. How so? Look at yourself, she replied, her voice that low, quiet, reasonable tone one uses around madmen and ugly drunks. Listen to yourself. You're tired. You're injured. You're racked by guilt. You're frightened. You will destroy yourself. And you with me? I asked her. Correct, she said. I do not fear the end of my existence, my host, but I would not be extinguished by one too self-deluded to understand what he was about. I'm not deluded, I said. But you are. You know that this effort shall probably kill you, and once it is done so, you will be free from any onus of what happened to the girl. After all, you heroically died in the effort to find her and retrieve her. You won't have to attend her funeral. You won't have to explain yourself to Michael. You won't have to tell her parents that their daughter is dead because of your incompetence. I did not reply. The emotions grew a little closer. This isn't anything more than an elaborate form of suicide chosen during a moment of weakness, Lashiel said. I do not wish to see you destroy yourself, my host. I stared at her. I thought about it. She might be right. It didn't matter. Move, I murmured, before I move you. Then I paused and said, Wait a minute, what am I thinking? It isn't as though you can stop me. Then I simply stepped through Lashiel's image to the table and reached for the white envelope. The white envelope began to spin in place on the table and abruptly became dozens of envelopes, each identical, each whirling like a pinwheel. But I can... Lashiel said quietly. I looked up to find her standing on the opposite side of the table from me. I witnessed the birth of time itself. I watched the mortal coil spring forth from perfect darkness. I watched the stars form, watched this world coalesce, watched as life was breathed into it and as your kind rose to rule it. She put both hands on the table and leaned toward me, her blue eyes cold and hard. Thus far, I have behaved as a guest ought. But do not mistake propriety for weakness, mortal. I beg you not to oblige me to take further action. I narrowed my eyes and reached for my sight. Before I could use it, my left hand exploded into flame. 
Pain. 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 Fire. Scorching. Parboiling my hand as I tried to hold it back with my shield bracelet. The memory of my injury in that vampire-haunted basement came rushing back to me in THX, and my nerve endings were listening. I fought down a scream, breathing, my teeth snapping together so suddenly and sharply that a fleck of one of my molars chipped away. It was an illusion, I told myself. A memory? It's a ghost, nothing more. It cannot harm you if you do not allow it to do so. I pushed hard against that memory, turning the focus of my will against it. I felt the illusion memory wobble, and then the pain was gone, the fire out. My body pumped endorphins into my bloodstream a heartbeat later, and I drifted on them as my focus started to collapse. I leaned hard against the table, my left hand held close to my chest in pure reflex, my right supporting my weight. I turned my attention to the envelopes and forced my will against them until the illusion grew translucent. I picked up the real envelope. Lashiel regarded me steadily, her beautiful face unyielding, determined. Sooner or later, I'll push through anything you throw, I panted. You know that. Yes, she said, but you will not be able to focus on the divination until you are quit of me. I may force you to exhaust yourself resisting me, in which case you will not attempt the divination. Even if I only delay you until dawn, there will be no need for you to attempt it. She lifted her chin. Whatever happens, the divination will not be successful. I let out a low chuckle, which made Lashiel frown at me. You missed it, I said. Missed what? The loophole. I could kill myself trying it while you rock the boat. And after all, this entire exercise is nothing more than a suicide attempt in any case. When I go through with it. Her jaw clenched. You would murder yourself rather than yield to reason? More manslaughter than murder, I'd say. You're mad, the fallen angel said. Give me some Alka-Seltzer and I'll foam at the mouth, too. This time, I hit Lashiel with the hard look. There's a child out there who needs me. I'd rather die than let her down. I'm doing the spell, period, so fuck off. She shook her head in frustration and looked away, frowning. You are quite likely to die. Broken record much? I asked. I got out the lock of baby fine hair, set my knife down on the table, and lit the ceremonial candles there. The fallen angel was correct, damn it. The fear stirred dangerously inside me, and my fingers shook hard enough to break the first kitchen match instead of kindling it to life. If you must do this, Lashiel said, at least attempt to survive it. Let me help you. You can help me by shutting the hell up and going away, I told her. Hellfire isn't going to be any use to me here. Perhaps not, Lashiel said, but there is another way. There was a shimmer of light in the corner of my eye, and I turned to see a slowly pulsing silver glow upon the floor in the middle of my summoning circle. Two feet beneath it lay the blackened denarius where the rest of Lashiel was imprisoned. Take up the coin, she urged me. I can at least protect you from a backlash. I beg you not to throw your life away. I bit my lip. I didn't want to die, damn it. 
and the thought of failing to save Molly was almost worse than death. The holder of one of the thirty ancient silver coins had access to tremendous power. With that kind of boost, I could probably pull the spell off, and even if it went south, I could survive it under Lashiel's protection. Somehow, I knew that if I chose to do it, I could get the coin out from under the concrete in only a moment, too. I stared at the silver glow for a moment. Then I rolled my eyes and said, Are you still here? Lashiel's face smoothed into an emotionless mask, but there was a subtle, ugly tone of threat in her voice. You are much easier to talk to when you are asleep, my host. And she was gone. Fear rattled around inside me. I tried to calm it, but I couldn't regain my earlier detachment. Not until I thought of young Daniel, mangled beneath my wizard's sight, wounded, defending his family from something I had sent after them. I thought of Molly's brothers and sisters. I thought of her mother, her father. I thought of the laughter, the sheer, joyous, rowdy life of Michael's family. Then I pinked my fingertip with my ritual knife, touched the lock of baby hair to it, and laid it down within little Chicago. I used a second drop of blood and an effort of will to touch the circle on the tabletop, closing it up and beginning the spell. I closed my eyes, focusing, murmuring a stream of faux Latin as I reached out to the model and brought it to life. My senses blurred, and suddenly I was standing on the tabletop at the model of my own boarding house. I thought the silver-colored model had grown to life-size at first, then realized that the inverse was more accurate. I had shrunk to scale with little Chicago, my awareness now within the spell rather than in my own body, which stood over the table like Godzilla murmuring the words of the spell. I closed my eyes and thought of Molly. My blood touched upon her lock of hair, and to my utter surprise... I shot off down the street, with no more effort than it took to pedal a bicycle. The streets beneath me and the buildings around me glowed with white energy, the whole of the place humming like high-powered tension lines. Stars and stones, little Chicago worked. It worked well. A surge of jubilation went through me, and my speed increased in proportion. I flashed through the streets, seeing faint images of people, like ghosts, the unsteady reflections of those now moving through the real Chicago around me. But then the spell wavered, and I found myself moving in a circle, like a baffled hound trying to pick up a scent trail. It didn't work. I made an effort and stood back in my own body, staring down at little Chicago, badly fatigued. Exhausted, I reached for my backpack, sat down, and fumbled Bob into my lap. His eyes lit up at once, and he said, Don't get me wrong, big guy, I like you, but not that way. Shut up, I growled at him. Just tried to use little Chicago to find Molly's trail. It fizzled. Bob blinked. It worked? The model actually worked? It didn't explode? Obviously. I said. It worked fine, but I used a simple tracking spell, and it couldn't pick up her trail. So what's wrong with the damn thing? Put me on the table, Bob said. I reached up and did so. He was quiet for a minute before he said, 
It's fine, Harry. I mean, it's working just fine. Like hell, I growled. I've done that tracking spell hundreds of times. It must be the model. I'm telling you, it's perfect, Bob said. I'm looking at the darn thing. If it wasn't your spell, and it wasn't the model... Hey, what did you use to focus the tracking spell? Lock of her hair? That's baby hair, Harry. So? Bob let out a disgusted sound. So it won't work, Harry. Babies are like one big, enormous, blank slate. Molly has changed quite a bit since that lock was taken. She doesn't have much to do with the person it got snipped from. Naturally, the spell couldn't track her. Damn it, I snarled. I hadn't thought of that, but it made sense. I had never used a lock of baby hair in the spell before, except once, to find a baby. Damn it, damn it, damn it. A tiny mistake. I was only human, and I had failed Molly. Chapter 34 I turned away from the table and hauled myself laboriously up the ladder to my living room. Charity sat on the edge of the couch with her head bowed, her lips moving. As I emerged, she stood up and faced me, tension quivering through her. Thomas, who had a kettle on my little wood-burning stove, glanced over his shoulder. I shook my head at them. Charity's face went white and she slowly sat down again. I went to the kitchen, found my bottle of aspirin and chewed up three of them, grimacing at the taste. Then I drank a glass of water. You make those calls? I asked Thomas. Yeah, he said. In fact, Murphy should be here in a minute. I nodded at him and walked over to settle into one of the easy chairs by the fireplace with my glass of water and told Charity, I thought I could find her. I'm sorry. I, I shook my head and trailed off into silence. Thank you for trying, Mr. Dresden, she said quietly. She didn't look up. It was the baby hair, I said to Charity. It didn't work. Hair was too old. I couldn't. I sighed. I'm just too tired to think straight. Maybe, I said, I'm sorry. Charity looked up at me. I expected fear, anger, maybe a little bit of contempt in her features. But none of that was there. It was instead something that I'd seen in Michael when the situation was really, really bad. It was a kind of quiet calm, a surety, totally at odds with the situation, and I could not fathom its source or substance. We will find her, she told me quietly. We'll bring her home. Her voice held the solid confidence of someone stating a fact as simple and obvious as two plus two is four. I didn't quite break out into a bitter laugh. I was too tired to do that. But I shook my head and stared at the empty fireplace. Mr. Dresden, she said quietly. I don't pretend to know as much about magic as you do. I'm quite certain you have a great deal of power. Just not enough, I said. Not enough to do any good. In the corner of my eye, I saw Charity actually smile. It's difficult for you to realize that you are, at times, as helpless as the rest of us. She was probably right, but I didn't say as much out loud. I made a mistake, and Molly might be hurt because of it. I don't know how to live with that. You're only human, 
she said, and there was a trace of pensive reflection in her voice. For all your power. That answer isn't good enough, I said quietly. I glanced at her to find her watching me, her dark eyes intent. Not good enough for Molly. Have you done all that you can to help her? Charity asked me. I racked my brain for a useless moment and said, Yeah. She spread her hands. Then I can hardly ask you for more. I blinked at her. What? She smiled again. Yes. It surprises me to hear myself say it as well. I have not been tolerant of you. I have not been pleasant to you. I waved a tired hand. Yeah, but I get why not. I realize that now, she said. You saw, but it took all of this to make me see it. See what? That much of the anger I've directed at you was not rightfully yours. I was afraid. I let my fear become something that controlled me, that made me harm others, you. She bowed her head. And I let it worsen matters with Molly. I feared for her safety so much that I went to war with her. I drove her toward what I most wished her to avoid, all because of my fear. I have been afraid, and I am ashamed. Everyone gets scared sometimes, I said. But I allowed it to rule me. I should have been stronger than that, Mr. Dresden. Wiser than that. We all should be. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and of self-control. I absorbed that for a moment. Then I asked, Are you apologizing to me? She arched an eyebrow and then said, her tone wry, I am not yet that wise. That actually did pull a quiet laugh from me. Mr. Dresden, she said, We've done all we can do. Now... We pray. We have faith. Faith? I asked. She regarded me with calm, confident eyes. That a hand mightier than yours or mine will shield my daughter. That we will be shown away. That he will not leave his faithful when they are in need. I'm not all that faithful, I said. She smiled again, tired but unwavering. I have enough for both of us. She met my eyes steadily and said, There are other powers than your magic, or that of the dark spirits that oppose us. We are not alone in this fight, Mr. Dresden. We need not be afraid. I averted my eyes before a soul gaze could get going, and before she could see them tear up. Charity, regardless of how she treated me in the past, had been there when the chips were down. She'd cared for me when I'd been injured. She'd supported me when she didn't have to do so. As abrasive, accusatory, and harsh as she could be, I had never for an instant doubted her love for her husband, for her children, or the sincerity of her faith. I never liked her too much, but I'd always respected her. Now, more than ever. I just hoped she was right when she said we weren't in this alone. I wasn't sure I really believed that, deep down. Don't get me wrong... I've got nothing against God, except for maybe wishing he was a little less ambiguous and had better taste in hired help. People like Michael and Charity, and to a lesser extent Murphy, had made me take some kind of faith under consideration now and again. But I wasn't the sort of guy who did well when it came to matters of belief, and I wasn't the sort of guy who I thought God would really want hanging around his house or his people.
Hell, there was a fallen angel in my brain. I counted myself lucky that I hadn't met Michael or one of the other knights from the business end of one of the swords. I looked at the gift popcorn tin in the corner by the door where my staff and rod were settled, along with my practice fighting staff, an uncarved double of my wizardly tool, my sword cane, an umbrella, and the wooden cane sheath of Fidlachius, one of the three swords borne by Michael and his brothers in arms. The sword's last wielder had told me that I was to keep it and pass it on to the next knight. He said I would know who and when. And then the sword sat in my popcorn tin for years. When my house had been invaded by bad guys, they'd overlooked it. Thomas, who had lived with me for almost two years, had never touched it or commented on it. I wasn't sure that he'd ever noticed it, either. He just sat there, waiting. I glanced at the sword and then up at the roof. If God wanted to throw a little help our way, now would be a good time to get that foreordained knowledge of who to give the sword to, at least. Not that it would do us all that much good, I supposed. With or without Fidlachius, we had a fair amount of power of the ass-kicking variety. What we needed was knowledge. Without knowledge, all the ass-kicking in the world wouldn't help. I watched the sword for a minute, just in case. No light show, no sound effects, not even a burst of vague intuition. I guess that wasn't the kind of help heaven was dishing out at the moment. I settled back in my chair. Charity had returned to her quiet prayers. I tried to think thoughts that wouldn't clash and hope that God wouldn't hold it against Molly that I was on her side. I glanced back over my shoulder. Thomas had listened to the whole thing with an almost supernatural quality of non-involvement. He was watching Charity with troubled eyes. He traded a glance with me that seemed to mirror most of what I was feeling. Then he brought everyone a cup of tea and faded immediately back to the kitchen alcove again while Charity prayed. Maybe ten minutes later, Murphy knocked at the door and then opened it. Besides Thomas, she was the only person I'd entrusted with an amulet that would let her through my wards without harm. She wore one of her usual work outfits, black jacket, white shirt, dark pants, comfortable shoes. Gray pre-dawn light backlit her. She took a look around the place frowning before she shut the door. What's happened? I brought her up to speed, finishing with my failure to locate the girl's trail. So you're trying to find Molly, Murphy asked, with a spell? Yeah, I said. I thought that was pretty routine for you, Murphy said. I mean, I can think of four or five times at least you've done that. I shook my head. That's tracking down where something is. I'm looking for where Molly's been. It's a different bag of snakes. Why? Murphy asked. Why not go straight to her? Because the fetches have taken her back home with them, I said. She's in the never-never. I can't zero in on her there. The best I can do is try to find where they crossed over, follow them across, and use a regular tracking spell once I'm through. Oh, she frowned and walked over to me. And for that, you need her hair? Yeah, I said. Which we don't have, so we're stuck. She chewed on her lip. Couldn't you use something else? Nail clippings, I said. Or blood, if it was fresh enough. Uh-huh, Murphy said. She nodded at Charity. What about her blood?
What? I said. She's the girl's mother, Murphy said. Blood of her blood, wouldn't that work? No, I said. Oh, Murphy said. Why not? Because, I frowned. Uh, I looked up at Charity for a moment. Actually, there was a magical connection between parents and children. A strong one. My mother had worked a spell linked to Thomas and me that would confirm to us that we were brothers. The connection had been established, even though she had been the only common parent between us. The blood connection was the deepest known to magic. It might work, I said quietly. I thought about it some more and breathed. Stars and stones, not just work. Actually, for this spell, it might work better. Charity said nothing, but her eyes glowed with that steady, unmovable strength. I thought to myself, that's what faith looks like. I nodded my head to her in a bow of acknowledgement. Then I turned to Murphy and gave her a jubilant kiss on the mouth. Murphy blinked in total surprise. Yes! I whooped, laughing. Murph, you rock! Go Team Dresden! Hey, I'm the one who rocks, she said. Go Team Murphy! Thomas snorted. Even Charity had a small smile, though her eyes were closed and her head was bowed again, murmuring thanks, presumably to the Almighty. Murphy had asked me the exact question I'd needed to hear to tip me off to the answer. Help from above? I was not above taking help from on high. And given whose child was in danger, it was entirely possible that divine intervention was precisely what had happened. I touched the brim of my mental hat and nodded my gratitude vaguely heavenward, and then turned to hurry back to the lab. Charity, I presume you're willing to donate for the cause? Of course, she said. Then we're in business. Get ready to move, people. This will only take me a minute. I stopped and put a hand on Charity's shoulder. And then we're going to get your daughter back. Yes, she murmured, looking up at me with fire in her eyes. Yes, we are. This time, the spell worked. I should have known where the fetches had found the swiftest passage from their realm to Chicago. It was one of those things that, in retrospect, was obvious. Charity's minivan pulled into the little parking lot behind Clark Bell's run-down old movie theater. It was out of view of the street. The sun had risen on our way there, though heavy cloud cover and grumbling thunder promised unusually bad weather for so early in the day. That shouldn't have surprised me either. When the queens of fairy were moving around backstage, the weather quite often seemed to reflect their presence. Murphy pulled her car in right behind the minivan and parked beside it. All right, Murph, Thomas, I said, getting out of the van. Fairy fighting, 101. I know, Harry, Thomas said. Yeah, but I'm going to go over it anyway, so listen up. We're heading into the never-never. We've got some wicked fairies to handle, which means we have to be prepared for illusions. I rummaged in my backpack and came out with a small jar. This is an ointment that should let you see through most of their bullshit. I went to Thomas and slapped some on him, then did Murphy's eyes, and then did my own. The ointment was my own mixture, based on the one the gatekeeper used. Mine smelled better, but stained the skin it touched with a heavy brown-black tone. I started to put the jar away. After we... Charity calmly took the jar from my hands, opened it, and put ointment on her own eyes. What are you doing? I asked her. I'm preparing to take back my daughter, 
she said. You aren't going with us, I told her. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Charity, this is seriously dangerous. We can't afford to babysit you. Charity put the lid back on the jar and dropped it into my backpack. Then she opened the sliding door on the minivan and drew out a pair of heavy-duty plastic storage bins. She opened the first and calmly peeled out of her pullover jersey. I noted a couple of things. First, that Charity had won some kind of chromosomal lottery when it came to the body department. She wore a sports bra beneath the sweater, and she looked like she could have modeled it if she cared to do so. Molly had definitely gotten her looks from her mother. The second thing I noticed was Charity's arms. She had broad shoulders for a woman, but her arms were heavy with muscle and toned. Her forearms especially looked lean and hard, muscles easily seen shifting beneath tight skin. I traded a glance with Murphy, who looked impressed. I just watched Charity for a minute, frowning. Charity took an arming jacket from the first tub. It wasn't some beat-up old relic, either. It was a neat, quilted garment, heavy black cotton over the quilting, which was backed by what looked a lot like Kevlar ballistic fabric. She pulled it on, belted it into place, and then withdrew an honest-to-God coat of mail from the tub. She slipped into it and fastened half a dozen clasps with the swift assurance of long practice. A heavy sword belt came next, securing the male coat. Then she pulled on a tight-fitting cap made in the same manner as the jacket, tucking her braided hair up into it, and then slipped a ridged steel helmet onto her head. She opened the second tub and drew out a straight sword with a cruciform hilt. The weapon was only slightly more slender and shorter than Michael's blessed blade, but after she inspected the blade for notches or rust, she flicked it around a few times as lightly as she would a rolled-up newspaper, then slid the weapon into the sheath on the sword belt. She tucked a pair of heavy chain gloves through the belt. Finally, she took a hammer from the big tub. It had a steel-bound handle about four feet long and mounted a head almost as large as a sledgehammer's backed by a wicked-looking spike. She put the hammer over her shoulder, balancing its weight with one arm, and turned to me. She looked ferocious, so armed and armored, and the heavy black stain around her eyes didn't do anything to soften the image. Ferocious. Hell. She looked competent. And dangerous. Everyone just stared at her. She arched a golden eyebrow. I make all of my husband's armor, she said calmly, as well as his spare weaponry by hand. Huh, I said. No wonder she was buff. You know how to fight, too? She looked at me as though I was a dim-witted child. My husband didn't become a master swordsman by osmosis. He works hard at it. Who did you suppose he's practiced against for the last twenty years? Her eyes smoldered again, a direct challenge to me. These creatures have taken my molly and I will not remain here while she is in danger. Ma'am, Murphy said quietly, practice is very different from the real thing. Charity nodded. This won't be my first fight. Murphy frowned for a moment and then turned a troubled glance to me. I glanced at Thomas, who was facing away, a little apart from the rest of us, staying out of the decision-making process. 
Charity stood there with that war hammer over one shoulder, her weight planted, her eyes determined. Hells, bells, I sighed. Okay, John Henry, you're on the team. I waved a hand and went back to the briefing. Fairies hate and fear the touch of iron, and that includes steel. It burns them and neutralizes their magic. There are extra weapons in the tub, as well as additional coats of mail, Charity offered. Though they might not fit you terribly well, Lieutenant Murphy. Charity had thought ahead. I was glad one of us had. Mail coat is just a thing for discouraging nasty fairy beasties with claws. Murphy looked skeptical. I don't want to break up the Battle of Hastings dress theme, Harry, but I find guns generally more useful than swords. Are you serious about this? You might not be able to rely on your guns, I told her. Reality doesn't work the same way in the never-never, and it doesn't always warn you when it's changing the rules. It's common to find areas of fairy where gunpowder is non-combustible. You're kidding, she said. Nope, get some steel on you. There's not a thing the fairies can do about that. It's the biggest edge mortals have on them. The only edge, Charity corrected. She passed me a sleeveless male shirt, probably the only one that would fit me. I dumped my leather duster, armored myself, and then put the duster back on over the mail. Murphy shook her head. Then she and Thomas collected mail and weaponry of their own. Couple more things, I said. Once we're inside, don't eat or drink anything. Don't accept any gifts or any offers from a fairy interested in making a deal. You don't want to wind up owing favors to one of the she, believe you me. I frowned, thinking. Then I took a deep breath and said, One thing more. Each of us must do everything possible to control our fear. Murphy frowned at me. What do you mean? We can't afford to carry in too much fear with us. The fetches feed on it. It makes them stronger. If we go in there without keeping our fear under control, they'll sense a meal coming. We're all afraid, but we can't let it control our thoughts, actions, or decisions. Try to keep your breathing steady and remain as calm as you can. Murphy nodded, frowning faintly. All right, then. Everyone hat up and sing out when you're good to go. I watched as Murphy got her gear into place. Charity helped her secure the armor. Her mail was a short-sleeved shirt, maybe one of Charity's spare suits. She'd compensated for the oversized armor by belting it in tight, but the short sleeves fell to her elbows, and the hem reached most of the way to her knees. Murphy looked like a kid dressing up in an adult's clothes. Her expression grew calm and distant as she worked, the way it did when she was focused on shooting, or in the middle of one of her five trillion and three formal katas. I closed my eyes and tentatively pushed my magical senses toward her. I could feel the energy in her, the life pulsing and steady. There were tremors in it, here and there, but there was no screaming beacon of violent terror that would trumpet our approach to the bad guys. Not that I thought there would be. What she lacked in height, she more than made up for in guts. On the other hand, Murphy had never been in the Never Never, and even though Fairy was as normal a place as you can find there, it could get pretty weird. Despite training, discipline, and determination, Novice deep-water divers can never be sure that they will remain free from the onset of the condition called pressure sickness. The never-never was much the same. You can't tell how someone is going to react the first time they fall down the rabbit hole. Thomas, being Thomas, made the mail into a fashion statement. 
He wore black clothing, black combat boots, and the arming jacket and mail somehow managed to go with the rest of his wardrobe. He had his saber on his belt on his left side, carried the shotgun in his right hand, and made the whole ensemble look like an upper-class version of the road warrior. I checked on Thomas with my wizard senses, too. His presence had never been fully human, but like the other members of the White Court, the vampiric aspects of him were not obvious to casual observation, not even to wizards. There was something feline about his aura, the same quality I would expect in a hungry leopard waiting patiently for the next meal to approach. Enormous power held in perfect balance. There was a darker portion of him, too, the part I'd always associated with the demonic presence that made him a vampire, a black and bitter well of energy, equal parts lust, hunger, and self-loathing. Thomas was no fool. He was certainly afraid, but the fear couldn't be sensed under that still, black surface. Charity, after she finished helping Murphy, stepped back from her and went to her knees in the parking lot. She folded her hands in her lap, bowed her head, and continued praying. Around her I felt a kind of ambient warmth, as though she knelt in her own personal sunbeam, the same kind of energy that had always characterized her husband's presence. Faith, I suppose. She was afraid, too, but it wasn't the primitive survival fear the fetches required. Her fear was for her daughter, for her safety, her future, her happiness. And as I watched her, I saw her lips form my name, then Thomas's, then Murphy's. Charity was more afraid for us than herself. Right there, I promised myself that I would get her back home with her daughter, back to her family and her husband, safe and sound and whole. I would not by God hesitate for a heartbeat to do whatever was necessary to make my friend's family whole again. I checked myself out, taking inventory, leather duster, ill-fitting male shirt, staff and blasting rod, check, shield bracelet and amulet, check. My abused left hand ached a little, and what I could feel of it felt stiff, but I could move my fingers. My head hurt, my limbs felt a little bit shaky with fatigue. I had to hope that adrenaline would kick in and make that problem go away when it counted. Everyone good to go? I asked. Murphy nodded. Thomas drawled. Yep. Charity rose and said, Ready. Let me sweep the outside of the building first, I said. This is their doorway home. It's possible that they've got the place booby-trapped, or that they've set up wards. Once I clear it, we'll go in. I trudged off to walk a slow circle around Pell's theater. I let my fingertips drag along the side of the building, closed my eyes most of the way, and extended my wizard's senses into the structure. It wasn't a quick process, but I tried not to dawdle, either. As I walked, I sensed a kind of trapped, suffocated energy bouncing around inside the building. Leakage from the never-never, probably, from when the fetches took Molly across. But several times, I also felt tiny, malevolent surges of energy, too random and mobile to be spells or wards. Their presence was disturbingly similar to that of the fetch I destroyed in the hotel. I came back to where I'd begun about ten minutes later. Anything? Thomas asked. 
No wards, no mystic landmines, I told him. But I think there's something in there. Like what? Like fetches, I said. Smaller than the big ones we're after, and probably set to guard the doorway between here and the never-never. They'll try to ambush us when we go in, Murphy said. Probably, I said. But if we know about it, we can turn it against them. When they come, hit them, fast and hard, even if it seems like overkill. We can't afford any injuries. Murphy nodded. What are we waiting for? Thomas asked. More help, I replied. Why? Because I'm not strong enough to open a stable passage to Deep Ferry, I said. Even if I wasn't tired and I managed to get it open, I doubt it would stay that way for more than a few seconds. Which would be bad? Murphy asked. Yeah. What would happen? Charity asked quietly. We'd die, I said. We'd be trapped in Deep Ferry, near the strongholds of all kinds of trouble, with no way to escape but to try to find our way to the portions of Ferry that are near Earth. The locals would eat us and spit out the bones before we got anywhere close to escape. Thomas rolled his eyes and said, This isn't exactly helping me keep my mind off my fear, man. Shut up, I told him, or I'll move to my second initiative and start telling you knock-knock jokes. Harry, Murphy said, if you knew you couldn't open the door long enough to let us get the girl, how did you plan to manage it? I know someone who can help, only she's totally unable to help me. Murphy scowled at me and then said, You're enjoying this. You just love to dance around questions and spring surprises when you know something the rest of us don't. It's like heroin for wizards, I confirmed. An engine throbbed nearby, and tires made a susurrus on asphalt. A motorcycle prowled around the theater to its rear parking lot, bearing two helmeted riders. The rearmost rider swung down from the bike, a shapely woman in leather pants and a denim jacket. She reached up, took off her green helmet, and shook out her snow-white hair. It fell at once into a silken sheet without the aid of a brush or a comb. The summer lady, Lily, paused to give me a slight bow, and she smiled at me, her green eyes particularly luminous. The bike's driver proved to be Fix. The summer night wore close-fitting black pants and a billowing shirt of green silk. He bore a rapier with a sturdy guard on his hip, and the leather that wrapped its handle had worn smooth and shiny, Fix put both helmets on a rack on the motorcycle, nodded at us, and said, Good morning. I made introductions, though I went into few details beyond names and titles. When that was done, I told Lily, Thank you for coming. She shook her head. I am yet in your debt. It was the least I could do, though I feel I must warn you that I may not be able to give you the help that you require. Meaning Titania's compulsion to prevent Lily from helping me was still in force. But I'd thought of a way to get around that. I know you can't help me, I said. But I wish to tell you that the onus of your debt to me has been passed to another in good faith. I must redress a wrong I have done to a girl named Molly Carpenter. To do so, I offer her mother your debt to me as payment. Fix barked out a satisfied laugh. Ha! <laughs> Lily's mouth spread into a delighted smile. Well done, wizard, she murmured. She turned to Charity and asked, Do you accept the wizard's offer of payment, lady? Charity looked a little lost, and she glanced at me. I nodded my head at her. Yeah, yes, she said.
Yes. So mote it be, Lily said, bowing her head to charity. Then I owe you a debt, lady. What may I do to repay it? Charity glanced at me again. I nodded and said, Just tell her. Charity turned back to the summer lady. Help us retrieve my daughter Molly, she said. She is a prisoner of the fetches of the winter court. I will be more than happy to do all in my power to aid you, Lily said. Charity closed her eyes. Thank you. It will not be as much help as you might desire, Lily told her, her voice serious. I dare not directly strike at the servants of winter, acting in lawful obligation to their queen, except in self-defense. Were I to attack, the consequences could be grave and retaliation immediate. Then what can you do? Charity asked. Lily opened her mouth to answer, but then said, The wizard seems to have something in mind. Yep, I said. I was just coming to that. Lily smiled at me and bowed her head, gesturing for me to continue. This is where they took the girl across, I told Lily. Must be why they attacked Pell first, to make sure the building was shut down and locked up so that they would have an immediate passage back if they needed it. I'm also fairly sure they left some guardians behind. Lily frowned at me and walked over to the building. She touched it with her fingers and her eyes closed. It took her less than a tenth of the time it had me, and she never moved from the spot. Indeed, she said. Three lesser fetches, at least. They cannot sense us yet, but they will know when anyone enters and attack. I'm counting on it, I said. I'm going to go in first and let them see me. Fix lifted his eyebrows. At which point they tear you to bits? This is a craftier plan than I had anticipated. I flashed him a grin. Wouldn't want you to feel left out, Fix. I want Lily to hold a veil over everyone else. Once the fetches show up to rip off my face, Lily drops the veil, and the rest of you drop them. Yeah, that's a much better plan, Fix drawled, his fingertips tracing over the hilt of his sword. And I can cut up vassals of winter, so long as it is no inconvenience to you, of course, milady. Lily shook her head. Not at all, Sir Knight. And I will be glad to veil you and your allies, Lady Charity. Charity paused and said, Wait a minute. Do I understand this situation correctly? You are not allowed to assist Harry, but because Harry has, what, passed his debt to me? Banks buy and sell mortgages all the time, I said. Charity arched a brow. And because he's given me your debt to him, you're doing whatever you can to help? Fix and Lily exchanged a helpless glance. They're also under a compulsion that prevents them from directly discussing it with anyone, I filled in. But you've got the basics right, Charity. Charity shook her head. Aren't they going to be in trouble for this? Won't... who commands her? Titania, I said. Charity blinked at me, and I could tell she'd heard the name before. The... the Fairy Queen? One of them, I said, yeah. She shook her head. I don't... Enough people are already in danger. Don't worry about us, ma'am, Fix assured her and winked. Titania has already laid down the law. We've obeyed it. Not our fault if what she decreed was not what she wanted. Translation, I said. We got around her fair and square. 
She won't like it, but she'll accept it. Oh, yeah, Thomas muttered under his breath. This isn't coming back to bite anyone in the ass later. Ixnay, I growled at him, then turned and walked toward the theater's rear entrance. I took up my staff in a firm grip and put its tip against the chains, holding the door shut. I took a moment to slow my breathing and focus my thoughts. It wasn't a gross power exercise. I wouldn't have to put nearly as much oomph into shattering the chain if I kept it small, precise, focused. Blasting a door down was a relatively simple exercise for me. What I wanted here was to use a minimum of power to snap a single link in the chain. I brought my thoughts to a pinpoint focus and muttered, Fosari. Power lashed through the length of my staff, and there was a hiss and a sharp crack nearly as loud as a gunshot. The chain jumped. I lowered my staff to find one single link split into two pieces, each broken and glowing with heat. I nudged the heated links to the ground with the tip of my staff, faintly surprised and pleased with how little relative effort it had taken. I reached out and tried the doorknob. Locked. Hey, Murph, I said. Look at that Zeppelin. I heard her sigh and turn around. I popped a couple of stiff metal tools out of my duster's pocket and started finagling the lock with them. My left hand wasn't much help, but it was at least able to hold the tool steady while my right did most of the work. Hey, Thomas said. When did you get those? Butter says it's good for my hand to do physical therapy involving the use of manual dexterity. Thomas snorted. So you started learning to pick the locks? I thought you were playing guitar. This is simpler, I said, and it doesn't make dogs start howling. I might have killed you if I'd heard House of the Rising Sun one more time, Thomas agreed. Where'd you get the picks? I glanced over my shoulder at Murphy and said, Little bird. One of these days, Dresden, Murphy said, still stubbornly faced away. I got the tumblers lined up and twisted with slow, steady pressure. The deadbolt slid to, and I pulled the door slightly ajar. I rose, put the tools away, and took up my staff again, ready for instant trouble. Nothing happened for a moment. I listened at the door for half a minute, but heard not a sound. All right, I said. Here we go. Everyone ready to... I glanced over my shoulder and found the parking lot entirely empty except for me. Wow, I said. Good veil, Lily. Then I turned back around, just as if my nerves weren't jangling like guitar strings, and said, Ding, ding. Round one. Chapter 35 I kicked the door open, staff held ready to fight, and shouted, And I'm all out of bubblegum! The pale gray light of the overcast sunrise coming in over the lake showed me a service corridor, the kind with walls that have marks and writing all over them, floors with the paint chipped off all down the middle of the walkway, and lots of stuff stacked up here and there. At the far end of the hallway was a door propped open with a rubber wedge. A worn sign on the door read, Employees Only. A curtained doorway about halfway down the hall opened on to what must have been the concessions counter in the little theater's lobby. Silence reigned. Not a single light shone within. 
Guess you had to see that one, I said to the empty building. John Carpenter, Rowdy Roddy Piper, longest fight scene ever, you know? Silence. Missed that one, huh? I asked the darkness. I stood there, hoping the bad guys would make this one easy. If they charged me, I could duck aside and then let my concealed allies take them apart. Instead, as bad guys so often do, they failed to oblige me. I started to feel a little silly just standing there. If I went ahead, the narrow passage would negate the participation of those now lurking in veiled ambush behind me. But had I really been alone, the hallway would have been as reasonable a fighting position as I could hope to gain. No way for the fetches to encircle me, no way to use their advantage of numbers. Had I really been alone, I would have needed to jump on an opportunity like that. There are stupid fairies, but fetches aren't among them. If I didn't behave like a lone wolf come to party, it would tip off the presence of my entourage. So, like a crazed loner with more death wish than survival instinct, I boldly strode into the building, staff held ready, teeth bared in a fighting grin. The place was dim and cooler than it should have been, even given the time of day. My breath turned to frost in front of my nose. The movie theater scent of popcorn had sunk into the very foundations and was now as much a part of the building as its walls and floor. My stomach rumbled. Like certain other portions of my anatomy, it had a tendency to become easily sidetracked and to hell with little details like survival. The rest of me was nervous. I had seen how fast one of those creatures could move. I could have ducked out of the way if they'd come charging from the far end of the hall at me, but not by much. Maybe two or three steps in, I reached a point where I judged that I wouldn't have time to retreat and let my allies ambush the attacker. For a few seconds, at least, I'd be on my own. A few seconds are forever in a fight. I shook out my shield bracelet, willed power into it, and walked with my left hand before me, both providing me some protection against a possible charge and casting low blue light that would let me see as I moved forward. Do you know what part of a movie this is? I said to myself as I moved. This is the part where the old farmer with the torch and the shotgun just can't keep himself from walking forward into the dark cave, even though he damn well knows there's a monster in there. I moved up to the hanging curtain and slid it aside with my staff. Several quick glances out showed me a small and dingy concession stand to go along with a small and dingy lobby. Nothing tried to eat my face. Oh, come on, I said louder. I'm starting to feel a little insulted here. If you guys keep this up, I'm going to take drastic cliched measures. Maybe walk backward through a doorway or something. My instinct suddenly screamed, and I flung myself through the curtain doorway, getting clear of the hall, as something darted toward me from the hall's far end. I didn't want to catch any bullets or blasts of fire or hurled hammers from my backup. There was a roar of sound from the hallway, something letting out a ululating howl, a heavy handgun, a roaring shotgun, and the buzzing snap of an arc of electricity. Blinding, blue-white light blazed through the curtain as I dove through it and showed me the fetch that had lurked in ambush on the other side. It was crouched on top of the glass cabinet, atop the concession stand's popcorn machine, and had taken the form of a creature that could only loosely be called 
a cat. It was twice Mister's size, and its moldy black fur stood out in tufts and spikes. Its shoulders were hunched, almost deformed with muscle, and its muzzle was broad and filled with teeth too heavy to belong to any feline short of a lion. Its eyes gleamed with a sickly greenish luminescence, and it flashed through the air, claws extended, teeth bared, emitting a mind-splitting howl of rage. I had no time or space to strike first, and it was a damn good thing I prepared my shield ahead of time. I brought it up and into a quarter dome between me and the fetch, blue power hissing. I should have kept in mind how easily the scarecrow had shed my magic the night before. The lesser fetch must have had some measure of the same talent, because it changed the tone of its howl in the middle of its leap, impacted my shield, and oozed through it as though the solid barrier was a thick sludge. There was no space to dodge in and no room to swing my staff, so I dropped it as the fetch's face emerged from my shield and drove my fist into the end of its feline nose. I dropped the shield as I did. With the shield gone, the only force acting on the fetch was the impact of my punch, and the shapeshifter flew backward into the old cash register on the concessions counter. It was made of metal. Blue sparks erupted from the fetch as its flesh hit the iron, along with a yowl of protest, tendrils of smoke, and an acrid odor. I heard footsteps in the corridor behind me, and then a trio of gunshots. Harry, Murphy called. Here, I shouted. I didn't have time to say anything else. The nightmare cat bounced up from the cash register, recovered its balance, and flung itself at me again, every bit as swiftly as the fetch I'd faced earlier. I ducked and tried to throw myself under the fetch to get behind it, but my body wasn't operating as swiftly as my mind, and the fetch's claws raked at my eyes. I threw up an arm, and the fetch slammed into it with a sudden, harsh impact that made my arm go numb from the elbow down. Claws and fangs flashed. The spellbound leather of my duster held, and the creature's claws didn't penetrate. Except for a shallow cut, a random claw accidentally inflicted on my wrist below the duster's sleeve, I escaped it unharmed. I hit the ground and rolled, throwing my arm out to one side in an effort to slam the fetch onto the floor and knock it loose. The creature was deceptively strong. It braced one rear leg against the counter, claws digging in, robbing the blow of any real force. It bounced off the floor with rubbery agility, pounced onto my chest, and went from my throat. I got an arm between the fetch and my neck. It couldn't rip its way through the duster, but it was stronger than it had any right to be. I was lying mostly on my back and had no leverage. It wrenched at my arm, and I knew I only had a second or two before it overpowered me, threw my arm out of its way, and tore my throat out. I reached down with my other hand and ripped my duster all the way off the front of my body. Cold iron seared the nightmare cat's paws in a hissing fury of sparks and smoke. The fetch let out another shrieking yowl and bounded almost straight up. Gunshots rang out again as the fetch reached the apogee of its reflexive leap. It twitched and screamed, jerking sharply. As it came back down, it writhed wildly in midair, altering its trajectory, and landed on the floor beside me. Murphy's combat boot lashed out in a stomping kick that sent the fetch sliding across the floor, and the instant it was clear of me, she started shooting again. 
She put half a dozen shots into the creature, driving it over the floor, howling in pain but thrashing with frenzied strength. The gun went empty. Murphy slammed another clip into the weapon, just as the fetch began gathering itself up off the floor. She kept pouring bullets into it as fast as she could accurately shoot and stepped with deliberate care to one side as she did so. Thomas came through the curtain with preternatural speed, his face bone white. He seized the stunned fetch by the throat and slammed it overhand into the cash register again and again until I heard its spine snap. Then he threw it over the concession stand into the lobby. Light flashed. Something that looked like a butterfly, sculpted from pure fire, shot over my head like a tiny comet. I scrambled to my feet to see the blazing butterfly hit the fetch square in the chest. The thing screamed again, front legs thrashing, rear legs entirely limp, as fire exploded over its flesh, burned a hole in its chest, and then abruptly consumed it whole. I leaned on the counter and panted for a second, then looked around to see the curtain slide aside of its own accord as Lily stepped through it. At that moment, the summer lady did not look sweet or caring. Her lovely face held an implacable, restrained anger, and half a dozen of the fiery butterflies flittered around her. She stared at the dying fetch until the fire winked out, leaving nothing, not even residual ectoplasm behind. Murphy reloaded and came over to me, though her eyes were still scanning for danger. You're bleeding. You all right? I checked. Blood from the injury on my wrist had trickled down over my palm and fingers. I pushed back my sleeve to get a look at the wound. The cut ran parallel to my forearm. It wasn't long, but was deeper than I'd thought. And it had missed opening up the veins in my wrist by maybe half an inch. My belly went cold, and I swallowed. Simple cut, I told Murphy. Not too bad. Let me see, Thomas said. He examined the injury and said, Could have been worse. You'll need a stitch or three, Harry. No time, I told him. Help me find something to wrap it up good and tight. Thomas looked around the concessions area and suggested, Silly straws? I heard an expressive sigh. Charity appeared at the curtained doorway, flipped open the leather case on her sword belt, and tossed Thomas a compact medical kit. He caught it, gave her a nod, and went to work on my hand. Charity stepped back into the hallway, her expression alert. Fix glanced in and went by the curtain doorway, presumably to the other end of the hall. What happened? I asked Murphy. One of those things charged down the hall to jump on your back, she said. Looked like some kind of mutant baboon. We took it down. Nature red, Thomas mused. Remember that movie? The one where the retrovirus gets loose in the zoo and starts mutating the animals? Baboon was from there. That cat thing, too. Huh. I said, yeah. I don't get it, Murphy said. Why do they all look like movie monsters? Fear, I said. Those images have been part of this culture for a while now. Over time, they've generated a lot of fear. Come on, Murphy said. I saw Nature Red. It wasn't that scary. This is a case of quantity over quality, I said. Even if it only makes you jump in your chair, there's a little fear. Multiply that by millions, the fetches take the form so that they can tap into a portion of that fear in order to create more of it. Murphy frowned and shook her head. Whatever. A light appeared 
in the hallway leading back to the actual theater. In an eye blink, Murphy and Thomas both had their guns pointed at it, and my shield bracelet was dripping heatless blue sparks ready to spring into place. It's all right, Lily said, her voice low. Fix appeared in the doorway at the far end of the lobby, sword in hand. Fire gleamed along the length of the blade as if it had been coated in kerosene and ignited. He looked around, frowning, and said, It isn't back this way. What isn't? I asked. The third, Lily said. There will be a third fetch. Why? I asked. Because they're fetches, Fix answered. We should check the bathrooms. Not alone, I said. Murph, Charity. Murphy nodded and slipped around the corner to join Fix. Charity slipped through the curtain and to the lobby in her wake. The three of them moved in cautious silence and entered the restrooms. They returned a moment later. Fix shook his head. There, Thomas said, finishing off the bandage. Too tight. I flexed the fingers of my right hand and stooped to recover my staff. It's good, I squinted around the place. One room left. We all looked at the double doors leading to the actual theater. They were closed. Faint lights flickered, barely noticeable from within the radius of our own illumination. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, I said, walking around the counter and into the lobby. I headed for the doors and tried to project confidence. Same plan. I paused at the doors while everyone gathered behind me. I looked back to check that they were ready, which is why I was the only one who saw what happened. The plastic trash can, about six inches behind Charity, suddenly exploded, the top flipping off, and paper cups and popcorn bags flew everywhere. Something humanoid and no larger than a toddler shot from the trash can. It had red hair and overalls, and it held a big old kitchen knife in one tiny hand. It hit Charity just above her tailbone, driving her into the ground, and lifted the knife. My companions had been taken by surprise, just a second or two, but as far as Charity was concerned, it might as well have been forever. There was no time for thought. Before I realized what I was doing, I took a pair of long steps, shifting my grip on my staff as I went, and swung it like a golf club at the fetch's head. It impacted with a meaty thunk. Its head flew off, bounced off of a pillar, and rolled to a stop not far from the rest of the thing. I had only a second to regard the doll's features before it began dissolving into ectoplasm. Thomas blinked at it and said, That was Bucky the murder doll. Kind of a wimp, I said. Thomas nodded. Must have been the run to the litter. I traded a glance with Murphy. Personally, I said, I never understood how anyone could have found that thing frightening to begin with. Then I went to Charity's side and offered her a hand up. She grimaced and took it. Are you all right? Nothing broken, she replied. She winced and put her hand to her back. I should have stretched out. Next time we'll know better, I said. Lily, is that it? The summer lady's eyes went distant for a moment, and then she murmured, Yes, there are no longer agents of winter in this place. Come. She stepped forward, and the doors to the theater proper opened of their own accord. We followed. It was your typical movie theater. Not one of the new stadium-seating fancy theaters, but one of the old models, with only a slight incline in the floor. Light played over the screen, though the projector was not running. 
Spectral colors shifted, faded, changed, and melded like the aurora borealis, and I was struck with a sudden intuition that the color and light were somehow being projected from the opposite side of the screen. The air grew even colder as we followed Lily down the aisle. She stopped in front of the screen, staring blankly at it for a moment, then shuddered. Dresden, she said quietly, this crossing leads to Arctis Tor. My stomach fluttered again. Oh, crap. I saw Thomas arch an eyebrow at me out of the corner of my eye. Crap? Murphy asked. Why? What is that place? I took a deep breath. It's the heart of winter. It's like... I shook my head. Think the Tower of London, the Fortress of Solitude, Fort Knox, and Alcatraz, all rolled up into one giant ball of fun. It's Mab's capital, her stronghold. I glanced at Lily. If what I've read about it is correct, that is. I've never actually seen the place. Your sources were accurate enough, Harry, Lily said. Her manner remained remote, strained. This is going to severely limit what help I can give you. Why? I asked. Lily stared intently at me for a second, then said, My power will react violently to that of Mab. I can open the way to the Arctis Tor, but holding the way open for your return will occupy the whole of my strength. Furthermore, so long as I hold the way open, I run the risk of letting creatures from deep winter run free in Chicago, which means that Fix must remain here to guard the passage against them. I cannot in good conscience send him with you. I scowled at the shifting colors on the screen. So, once we go in, we're on our own. Yes. Super. Without Lily and Fix's power to counter that of the Winter Fay within Arctis Tor, our odds of success would undergo a steep reduction. And I had hoped we would be attacking an independent trio of fairies, lairing in a cave or under a bridge or something. I hadn't figured on storming the Bastille. I looked up and met Charity's eyes for a second. I turned back to the dancing lights on the movie screen and told the others, Things just got a lot worse. I'm still going. None of you have to come with me. I don't expect you to. Before I finished speaking, Charity, Murphy, and Thomas stepped up to stand beside me. A bolt of warmth, fierce with joy and pride and gratitude, flashed through me like sudden lightning. I don't care about whose DNA has recombined with whose. When everything goes to hell, the people who stand by you without flinching, they are your family. And they were my heroes. I nodded at Lily. She closed her eyes, and the shimmering colors on the screen grew brighter, more vibrant. The air grew colder. All right, I said quietly. Each of you get a hand on my shoulder. I resettled my grip on my wizard's staff and murmured, Round two. Chapter 36 Every time I opened a way to the Never Never, it always looked pretty much the same. An uneven vertical rip in the air that let in the sights and sounds and scents of the world on the other side. The longer I wanted the rift to stay open, the bigger I'd ripped the hole. 
more experienced wizards had made a comment or two over the years to suggest that I still had a lot to learn on the subject. When Lily opened the way to Arctis Tor, I understood why. Light and color shifted over the screen, their flow quickening, deepening. At first, nothing else happened. The movie screen was simply a surface. Then the hairs on the back of my neck rose, and a cold wind wafted into my face, bringing with it the dry, sterile scent of winter in high, barren mountains, and the high, lonely cry of some kind of wild beast like nothing in the real world. Deep blue came to dominate the colors on the screen, and a moment later resolved itself into the shapes of mountains towering beneath the light of an impossibly enormous silver moon. They were bleak and hateful stone peaks, wreathed in mist and wrapped in ice and snow. The wind moaned and blew frozen crystals into our faces, then sank into a temporary lull. The blowing snow cleared just enough to get me my first look at Arctis Tor. Mab's stronghold was a fortress of black ice, an enormous, shadowy cube sitting high up the slope of the highest mountain in sight. A single, elegant spire rose above the rest of the structure. Flickers of green and amethyst energy played within the ice of the walls. I couldn't make a good guess at how big the thing was. The walls and battlements were lined with inverted icicles. They made me think of the fanged jaws of a hungry predator. A single gate, small in comparison to the rest of the fortress, stood open. Hell's bells. How the hell was I supposed to get in there? It was almost a relief when the wind rose again, and blowing snow once more obscured the fortress from view. It was only then that I realized that the way was open. Lily had brought it forth so smoothly that I hadn't been able to tell when image gave way to reality. By comparison, my own ability to open a way to the never-never was about as advanced as the paintings of a particularly gifted gorilla. I glanced back at Lily. She gave me a small smile and then gestured with one hand. One of the fiery butterflies fluttering around her altered course and soared over to me. This much I can do for you all, she murmured. It will lead you through the storm and ward away the cold until you can return here. Do not tarry, wizard. I do not know how long I will be able to hold the way open for your return. I nodded. Thank you, Lily. This time her smile was warmer, more like that of the girl she had been before becoming the summer lady. Good luck, Harry. Fix took a deep breath and then hopped up onto the stage floor at the base of the movie screen. He turned to offer me a hand up. I took it, stared at the frozen wasteland for a second, and then stepped directly forward into what had been the screen. I found myself standing in knee-deep snow, and the howling winds forced my eyes almost shut. I should have been freezing, but whatever enchantment Lily's blazing butterfly used seemed effective. The air felt almost as warm as that of a ski slope seeing its last day of the season. Thomas, Murphy, and Charity stepped out of a shimmer in the air, and Fix followed them a second later. Hey, Fix, I said. I had to raise my voice to be heard over the wind. I thought you weren't coming. The summer night shook his head. I'm not. 
But it will be easier to stop anything going through from this side, he said. He regarded us and asked lightly, You bring enough iron, you think? We're about to find out. Christ, you're going to piss off Mab something fierce bringing iron here. I was doing that anyway, I assured him. He nodded, then glanced back at the rift and frowned. Harry, he said, there's something you should know before you go in. I arched an eyebrow and listened. We just got word from our observers that there's a battle underway. The Reds found one of the major headquarters of the Venatori Umbrorum. Who? Charity asked. Secret organization, I told her, like the Masons, but with machine guns. The Venatori sent out a call for help, Fix continued. The council answered it. I chewed my lower lip. Do you know where? Oregon, a couple hours from Seattle, he said. How bad is it? So far, it's too close to call, but it's not good. The Reds had their sorceress types mucking around with a lot of the council's pathways through the never-never. A lot of the wardens got sidetracked from the battle completely. Damn it, I muttered. Isn't there anything Summer can do to help? Fix grimaced and shook his head. Not with the way Mab's forces are disposed. If we pull enough of our forces from Summer to help the council, it will weaken us. Winter will attack. He stared at the looming fortress, glimpsed in half-instants through the gusting snow, and shook his head. The council's mindset is too defensive, Harry. If they keep sitting tight and reacting to the enemy, instead of making the Reds react to them, they'll lose this war. I grunted. Clausewitz would agree, but I don't think the Merlin knows from Clausewitz, and this is a long way from over. Don't count us out yet. Maybe, he said, but his voice wasn't confident. I wish I could do more, but you'd better get going. I'll hold the door for you. I offered him my hand, and he shook it. Be careful, I said. Good hunting, he replied. I glanced at my three companions and called. Ready? They were. We followed the burning butterfly through the snow. Without its protection from the elements, I doubt we would have made it, and I made it a point to remember to wear sufficient cold-weather gear in the event that I somehow survived this ongoing idiocy and was crazy enough to come back a second time. Even with the summer magic to protect us, it was a pretty good hike over unfriendly terrain. I'd done worse in the past, with both Justin DeMorne and Ebenezer, and there are times when having long legs can be a real advantage on rough terrain. Charity seemed all right, too, but Thomas had never been much of an outdoorsman, and Murphy's height put her at a disadvantage that the unaccustomed weight of her armor and cutlery exacerbated. I traded a glance with Charity. I started giving Thomas a hand on rough portions of our climb. Charity helped Murphy. At first I thought Murphy might take her arm off out of wounded pride, but she grimaced and visibly forced herself to accept the help. The last two hundred yards or so were completely open, with no trees or undulation of terrain to shield our approach from the walls of the fortress. I lifted a hand to call a halt at the edge of the last hummock of stone that would shelter us from view. Lily's butterfly drifted in erratic circles around my head, snowflakes hissing to steam where they touched it. I peered over the edge of a frozen boulder at Arctis Tor for a long time, then settled back down again. I don't see anyone, I said, trying to keep my voice down. Doesn't make any sense, Thomas said. He was panting and shivering a little, despite Lily's warding magic. 
I thought this was supposed to be Mab's headquarters. This place looks deserted. It makes perfect sense, I said. Winter's forces are all poised to hit summer. You don't do that from the heart of your own territory. You gather at strong points near the enemy's border. If we're lucky, maybe there's just a skeleton garrison here. Murphy peered around the edge of the stones and said, The gate's open. I don't see any guards. She frowned. There are... There's something on the open ground between here and there. See? I leaned next to her and peered. Vague, shadowy shapes stirred in the wind between us and the fortress, insubstantial as any shadow. Oh, I said. It's a glamour, illusion laid out around the place, probably a hedge maze of some kind. And it fools people? she asked uncertainly. It fools people who don't have groovy wizard ointment for their eyes, I said. Then I frowned and said, wait a minute. The gate isn't open. It's gone. What? Charity asked. She leaned out and stared. There is a broken lattice of ice on the ground around the gate. A portcullis? Could be, I agreed. And inside, I squinted. I think I can see some heavier pieces. Like maybe someone ripped apart the portcullis and blew the gate in. I took a deep breath, feeling a hysterical little giggle lurking in my throat. Something huffed and puffed and blew the house in. Mab's house. The wind howled over the frozen mountains. Well, Thomas said, that can't be good. Charity bit her lip. Molly. I thought you said this Mab was almighty and stuff, Harry, Murphy said. She is, I said, frowning. Then who plays Big Bad Wolf to her little pig? I... I shook my head and rubbed at my mouth. I'm starting to think that maybe I'm getting a little bit out of my depth here. Thomas broke out into a rippling chuckle, a faint note of hysteria to it. He turned his back to the fortress and sat down, chortling. I glowered at him and said, It's not funny. It is from here, Thomas said. I mean, God, you are dense sometimes. Are you just now noticing this, Harry? I glowered at him some more. To answer your question, Murph, I don't know who did this, but the list of people who could is fairly short. Maybe the senior council could if they had the wardens along, but they're busy, and they'd have had to fight a campaign to get this far. Maybe the vampires could have done it, working together, but that doesn't track. I don't know. Maybe Mab pissed off a god or something. There is only one god, Charity said. I waved a hand and said, No capital G, Charity, in deference to your beliefs. But there are beings who aren't the Almighty, who have power way beyond anything running around the planet. Like who? Murphy asked. Old Greek and Roman and Norse deities? Lots and lots of Amaran divinity and African tribal beings, a few Australian aboriginal gods, others in Polynesia, Southeast Asia, about a zillion Hindu gods, but they've all been dormant for centuries. I frowned at Arctis Tor, and I can't think what Mab might have done to earn their enmity. She's avoided doing that for thousands of years. Unless, of course, I thought to myself, Mav and Lily are right, and she really has gone bonkers. Dresden, Charity said, this is academic. We either go in or we leave. Now. 
I chewed my lip and nodded. Then I dug in my pockets for the tiny vial of blood Charity had provided and hunted through the rocks until I found a spot clear enough to chalk out a circle. I empowered it and wrought one of my usual tracking spells, keying it to a sensation of warmth against my senses. Cold as it was, I would hardly mind anything that might make me feel a little less freeze-dried. I broke the circle and released the spell and immediately felt a tingling warmth on my left cheekbone. I turned to face it and found myself staring directly at Arctis Tor. I paced fifty or sixty yards to the side and faced the warmth again, working out a rough triangulation. She's alive, I told Charity, or the spell wouldn't have worked. She's in there. Let's go. Wait, Charity said. She gave me a look filled with discomfort and then said, May I say a brief prayer for us first? Can't hurt, I said. I'll take all the help I can get. She bowed her head and said, Lord of hosts, please stand with us against this darkness. The quiet, bedrock-deep energy of true faith brushed against me. Charity crossed herself. Amen. Murphy echoed the gesture and the amen. Thomas and I tried to look theologically invisible. Then, without further speech, I swung out around the frozen stone cairn and broke into a quick, steady jog. The others followed along. I passed the first bones fifty yards from the walls. They lay in a crushed, twisted jumble in the snow, frozen into something that looked like a macabre Escher print. The bones were vaguely human, but I couldn't be sure because they'd been pulverized to dust in some places, warped like melted wax in others. It was the first grisly memorial of many. As I kept going forward, brittle, frozen bones crunched under my boots, lying closer and thicker and twisted more horribly as we drew closer to Arctis Tor. By the time we got to the gate, I was shin-deep in icy bones. They spread out on either side in an enormous wheel of horrible remains centered on the gate. Whoever they had been, thousands of their kind had perished here. Charity's guess about the portcullis had been bang on. Pieces of it lay scattered about, mixed among the bones. Where the gate arched beneath the fortress walls, there were still more bones, waist-deep on me, and slabs of plain, dark ice, the remains of the fortress gate, stuck out at odd angles. The walls of Arctis Tor had been pitted with what I could only assume had been an acid of some kind. There were larger gouges blown out of the walls here and there, but against their monolithic volume, they were little more than pockmarks. I pushed ahead to the gate, plowing my way through the bones. Once there, I caught a faint whiff of something familiar. I leaned closer to one of the craters blown out of the wall and sniffed. What is it? Thomas asked me. Sulfur, I said quietly. Brimstone. What does that mean? he asked. No way to tell, I half lied, but my intuition was absolutely certain of what had happened here. Someone had thrown hellfire against the walls of Arctis Tor, which meant that the forces of the literal hell, or their agents, were also playing a part in the ongoing events. Way, way, way out of my depth. I told myself that it didn't matter. 
There was a young woman inside that frozen boneyard who would die if I did not burgle her out of this nightmare. If I did not control my fear, there was an excellent chance that it would warn her captors of my approach. So I fought the fear that threatened to make me start throwing up or something equally humiliating and potentially fatal. I readied my shield, gripped my staff, ground my teeth together, and then continued pushing my way forward through the bones and into the eerie dimness of the most ridiculously dangerous place I had ever been. Chapter 37 The black ice walls of Arctis Tor were sixty feet thick, and walking through the gateway felt more like walking through a railroad tunnel, except for all the bones. Every breath, every step, every rasp of bones rubbing against one another multiplied into a thousand echoes that almost seemed to grow louder rather than fading away. The bones piled higher as I went, forcing me to walk atop them as best I could. The footing was treacherous. The deep green and violet and occasionally red or green pulses of luminance in the black ice walls did nothing to light the way. They only made the shadows shift and flow subtly, degrading my depth perception. I started feeling a little carsick. If one of the fetches appeared at the far end of the tunnel and charged me, things would get nasty and fast, especially given how ineffective my magic had been against them and how the bones had slowed my pace. That was more than a little spooky, and it was hard to keep myself from thrashing ahead more quickly out of pure fear. I kept a steady pace, held it in, and refused to allow it to control me. I'd been shielding my thoughts from Lashio for a couple of years now. Damned if I was going to give a bunch of murderous fairy monsters the chance to paw through my emotions. I checked behind me. Charity had trouble managing the awkward task of crawling over the bones while armored and holding that big old war hammer, but she stuck to it with grim focus and determination. Behind her, Murphy seemed to have far less trouble. Thomas prowled along at the rear, graceful as a panther in a tree. I emerged from the gate into the courtyard. The inside of the fortress was bleak, cold, and beautiful in its simple symmetry. Rooms and chambers had either never been built or had been built into the walls and their entries hidden. Stairs led up to the battlements atop the walls. The courtyard was flat, smooth, dark ice, and at its center the single spire reared up from the ground a round turret that rose to a crenellated parapet that overlooked the walls and the ground beneath. The courtyard also held a sense of quiet stillness to it, as though it was not a place meant for living, moving, changing beings. The howl of the wind outside and overhead did not reach the ground. It was as silent as a librarian's tomb, and each footstep sounded clearly on the ice. Echoes bounced back and forth in the courtyard, somehow carrying a tone of disapproval and menace with them. Bones spilled out in a wave from the gate, rapidly tapering off after a few yards. Beyond that were only scattered groupings of bones. Thomas drifted over to one such and poked at it with his drawn saber. The blade scraped on a skull, too big to stuff into an oil drum, too heavy and thick to look entirely human. What the hell was this? 
Thomas asked quietly. Troll, probably, I said. Big one. Maybe fourteen, fifteen feet tall. I looked around. Half a dozen other enormous skulls lay in the scattered collections of remains. Another six had fallen very close to each other at the base of the spire. Give me a second. I want to know what we're looking at before we move ahead. Charity looked like she wanted to argue, but instead she took up position a few yards off, watching one way. Thomas and Murphy spread out, each keeping their eyes on a different direction. Mixed in with the fallen troll's bones were broken pieces of dark ice that might have been the jigsaw puzzle remains of armor and weapons. Each fragment bore the remnants of ornate engraving employing gold, silver, and tiny blue jewels. Fairy artistry, and expensive artistry at that. Thirteen of them. The trolls were mabs, I murmured. I saw some of them outfitted like this a couple of years back. How long have they been dead? Murphy asked quietly. I grunted and hunkered down. I stretched my left hand out over the bones and closed my eyes, focusing my attention on sharpening my senses, mundane and magical alike. Very faintly, I could scent the heavy, bestial stink of a troll. I'd only seen a couple of the big ones from up close, but you could smell the ugly bastards from half a mile away. There was a rotten odor, more like heavy mulch than old meat, and there was more sulfur and brimstone. Below that, I could feel tremors in the air over the spot, the psychic residue of the troll's violent death. There was a sense of excitement, rage, and then a dull, seldom-felt terror, and a rush of sharp, frozen images of violent death, confusion, terror, and searing agony. My hand flinched back from the phantom sensation of its own accord, and for just a moment the memories of my burning took on tangible form. I hissed through my teeth and held my hand against my stomach, willing the too real ghost of pain away. Harry? Murphy asked. What the hell? The impression the death had left was so sharp, so severe, that I had actually gotten bits of the troll's memories. That had never happened to me before. Of course, I had never tried to pick up vibes in the never-never, either. It made more sense that the substance of the spirit world would leave a clearer spiritual impression. Harry, Murphy said again, more sharply. I'm all right, I said through clenched teeth. The imprint had been more clear than anything I'd ever felt in the real world. In Chicago, I would have thought it was only a few seconds old. Here? I can't tell how old they are, I said. My gut says not very, but I can't be sure. It must have been weeks, Thomas said. It takes that long for bones to get this clean. It's all relative, I said. Time can pass at different rates in ferry. These bones could have fallen a thousand years ago by the local clock, or twenty minutes ago. Thomas muttered something under his breath and shook his head. What killed them, Harry? Murphy asked. Fire. They were burned to death, I said quietly. Down to the bone. Could you do that? Thomas asked. I shook my head. I couldn't make it that hot. Not at the heart of winter. Not even with hellfire. The remains of perhaps a thousand creatures lay scattered about. I'd cut loose once in the past and roasted a bunch of vampires, and maybe some of their victims with them. 
But even that inferno hadn't been big enough to catch more than a tithe of the fallen defenders of Arctis Tor. Then who did it? Charity asked quietly. I didn't have an answer for her. I rose and nudged a smaller skull with my staff. The littler ones were goblins, I said, foot soldiers. I rolled a troll-sized thigh bone aside with my staff. An enormous sword, also of that same black ice, lay shattered beneath it. These trolls were her personal guard, I gestured back at the gate, covering her retreat to the tower, maybe. Some of them got taken down along the way. The others made a stand at the tower's base, died there. I paced around, checking what the tracking spell had to say, and triangulated again. Molly's in the tower, I murmured. How do we get in? Murphy asked. I stared at the blank wall of the spire. Um, I said. Charity glanced over my shoulder and nodded at the spire. Look behind those trolls. If they were covering a retreat, they should be near the entrance to the tower. Maybe, I said. I walked over to the tower and frowned at the black ice. I ran my right hand over its surface, feeling for cracks or evidence of a hidden doorway, my senses tuned to discover any magic that might hide a door. I had the sudden impression that the black ice and the slowly pulsing colors inside were somehow alive, aware of me. And they did not like me at all. I got a sense of alien hatred, cold and patient. Otherwise, I got nothing for my trouble but half-frozen fingers. Nothing here, I said, and wrapped my knuckles on the side of the tower, eliciting the dull thump of a very solid object. Maybe the trolls just wanted to fight with their backs to something solid. I might have to go all the way around checking for, without any warning at all, the ice of the tower parted. An archway appeared, the ice that had hidden it flowing seamlessly into the rest of the tower. The interior of the tower was all shadows and slowly shifting lights that did little to provide any illumination. Inside was nothing but a spiral staircase, winding counterclockwise up through the spire. I glanced from the archway to my chilled fingers and back. Next time, I guess I'll just knock. Come on. Charity said. She shifted her grip on the war hammer, holding it at something like high port arms, handle parallel to her spine, heavy head, ready to descend. We have to hurry. Thomas and Murphy turned to join us at the door. An idle, puzzled sense of familiarity gave way to my instinct's furious warning. Fetches were the masters of the sucker punch. Like the Bucky Fetch, who had jumped us just as we opened the doors to the theater, they knew how to position themselves to attack just as their enemies focused their attention on some kind of distraction. The suddenly opened doorway was it. Mounds of bones around the courtyard exploded into motion. Fetches hurtled at us over the ground. There weren't three of them either. There were dozens. The Fetches, here in Fairy, did not look like movie monsters. Their true forms were only vaguely humanoid, wavering uncertainly, as black as midnight shadows, but for ghostly white eyes. I could see other shapes around them, translucent and faint. Here, another one of those alien monster things. There, some kind of wolf-like biped. There, an enormous man with the head of a warthog. 
but the salve I had spread over my eyes revealed those illusions for what they really were and showed me the thing beneath the mask. My magic had a risky batting average against these creatures, but there were things I could do besides hosing energy directly at the enemy. Hellfire came to my call, and my staff's runes exploded into light as brilliant as a magnesium flare. Their flame lit the benighted courtyard while somehow not damaging my clothing or flesh. My will and the hellfire roared through me in a torrent as I whirled the staff in a circle over my head and screamed, Ventus Cyclus! The howling winds thundered down into the silent courtyard as if I'd torn off an unseen roof. They gathered along my spinning staff, fluttering with lightning the same color as the blazing runes on the staff. I cried out and hurled the winds, not at the oncoming fetches, but at the thousands of bones lying between them and me. The wind picked them up with a wailing shriek, a sudden cyclone of broken bones and shattered armor spinning them into a whirling curtain. The lead fetches were too late to avoid plunging into the cloud, and the ossified tornado began to rip them apart, battering to pulp whatever was not sheared away by the edges and points of bone and broken shards of ice. Fetches, following in their wake, skidded to a halt, letting out a startlingly loud chorus of hisses, the sounds filled with rage. Thomas cried out, and I heard heavy footsteps. Another fetch, this one much larger, came around the curve of the spire's wall. The ghost image of the Reaper was all around him. A beat later, another charged us from the other direction, just as large, this one with the faint image of Hammerhand, an almost obscenely muscled figure in black, heavy mallets emerging from the ends of his sleeves. Into the tower! I bellowed. The Reaper reached Thomas, and its arm rose up, tipped with gleaming black talons in its true form, the illusion superimposing the image of the Reaper's trademark scythe over them. Thomas caught the Reaper's sweeping claws on his saber, but instead of the ringing of steel on steel, there was a flash of green-white light, and the Reaper fetch howled in agony as the steel of the blade struck its claws cleanly from its appendage. Thomas crouched, hips and shoulders twisting in a sharp one-two movement. The saber's blade cut and burned a flattened X shape into the fetch's abdomen. The fetch roared in agony, and liquid green-white fire burst from the wound. The creature swung its other arm, its speed taking even Thomas by surprise. He avoided most of the power of the blow, but what was left slammed him into the side of the tower. I heard a gunshot behind me, then another, and then Murphy snarled. Damn it! I turned in time to see her bob to one side, and then to the other, as Hammerhand swung a mallet limb down at her. The blow crashed into the courtyard with a cracking impact as loud as a rifle shot. Murphy danced in closer to the fetch, inside the awkward reach of its club hands. It thrust one down at her. At first I thought she was slapping it aside, but then she grabbed onto the fetch and continued the motion, adding her own weight and strength to the fetches and redirecting the force of the blow so that the fetch's weapon hand crushed its own foot. The fetch bellowed in pain and lost its balance. Murphy shoved in the same direction, and the fetch fell. She leapt away from it for the tower door while I grabbed Thomas and hauled him inside. From somewhere up the stairs, I heard a terrified scream. 
Molly. Charity let out a cry and threw herself up the stairs. No, I shouted. Charity, wait! The door darkened as a fetch tried to come through. Murphy, her back flat against the wall beside the door, drew the long fighting dagger she had taken from Charity's box of goodies. Just as its nose cleared the doorway, she whirled in a half-circle and with all the power of her legs, hips, back, and shoulders, drove the knife to its hilt in one of the thing's white eyes. The fetch went mad with agony. It slammed itself blindly against the inside of the doorway, more liquid fire erupting from the wound, and lurched back and forth until Thomas stepped up to it, lifted a boot, and kicked the fetch with crushing strength, hurling the mortally wounded fairy back out onto the courtyard. Go! he cried. Another fetch began to press in, and Thomas went to work with his sword. His blows struck more burning wounds into the fetch, and its blood sizzled like grease on a stove when it touched the cold iron of his blade. Thomas dodged a return blow and pressed his attack with a sneer, driving the thing back from the doorway. Go! he yelled again. I'll hold the door! A snake-like, whipping limb shot in along the floor, seized Thomas's ankle, and hauled his foot out from under him. I clutched at him and kept him from being drawn into the open. Murph! Murphy slid up, pointed her pistol out the door, and squeezed off several shots. A fetch screamed in pain, and Thomas's legs suddenly came free. I pulled him in, and he lunged to his feet again. We'll hold the door, Murphy said, her voice sharp. Get the girl! Molly screamed again. Charity's booted feet thudded unseen from the stairs above me. I spat out an oath and sprinted after her.